0: Hey, I'm Alan Hunter. You're listening on the Pantheon Network.
1: This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi wild cherry also available in zero sugar. So grab a Pepsi wild cherry and get wild.
2: There, welcome to episode 157 of Love That Album, proudly part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. My name is Morris Bishdinsky, thank you so much for downloading the show. Aside from this, I think the most iconic drum pattern for a pop song has to be this. Please don't write to contradict me. My Sharona by the neck was ubiquitous on the airwaves back in 1979. It proved to be a blessing and a curse for the band from Los Angeles. I'm not going to go into the history here. If you've lived through it, you know that the media and some fans turned fickle for a whole bunch of reasons. I was always left asking why. Over their lifetime, the band produced six studio albums. There were breakups and multiple drummers, none of which I'm pleased to say spontaneously combusted on stage. Although the classic lineup of the first three albums recorded for Capitol Records featured the powerhouse that was Bruce Gary behind the drum kit. The band finally called it a day after the death of lead singer, rhythm guitarist and songwriter Doug Feiger in 2010. Off and on, the band were around for about 40 years. Not bad for a band that the lazy people say were just a one-hit wonder. I call bullshit. They kept working. All their studio albums have terrific songs that deserve your attention, certainly from the people who only went as far as their brilliant debut get the knack, but even from anyone who has a great love of pop music. I got that debut album back in 1979 and it's never been far from my turntable. Neither has But the Little Girls Understand or Round Trip. The three remaining albums are also very good. Zoom would be my favourite out of those three and I'd recommend that if you can track it down. I'm thrilled to welcome to the show the bassist for the knack, Prescott Niles. 15 year old me would never have believed I'd be speaking to a musician from a band I played obsessively. And yes, I played played that Sharona drum pattern all the time behind the kid growing up. As you'll hear in this conversation, Prescott's history and the Knack's history is about a lot more than the one song that most people know them for. We'll be speaking about what he did pre-Knack as well as his time in the band. He had first-hand stories about Woodstock, Jimi Hendrix, George Harrison, Fillmore East and a ton more. The thing that comes across the most though is his pride in what they achieved. He loved his fellow bandmates and as you'll hear, champions their musicianship and their their friendship This discussion, i got to say, was an absolute hoot and was recorded over two sessions when we ran out of time at the first. We spoke for a lot more than what was recorded. I'm wrapped that doing this show has given me that opportunity. I want to send special thanks out to Randy Haker, who made the arrangements for this interview for me. I had to change dates around a couple of times, so I'm so grateful that he worked around me for that. So, as usual, Joanne will now give you the contact details and then I'll be back with my discussion with Prescott Niles of The Knack. Stick around at the end of the show for details of next month's program you're listening to love that album episode 157
0: i got a dusty old pile of vinyl records sitting on my floor we hope you're enjoying the show you can find previous episodes at lovethatalbumpodcast.blogspot.com or you can get it along with any of the other great music discussion shows at rockandrollarchaeology.com all part of the pantheon podcast network To keep up to date, subscribe to the show via Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or your podcast app of choice. You can email Morris with feedback or album suggestions at rrkitchen at yahoo.com.au. Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash love that album and start a music related discussion.
2: Welcome back to episode 157 of Love That Album Podcast. And look, I frequently go and say that I'm excited about having some of the special guests that I have on the show, but I really, really am doubly excited because I have a member of a band that meant so much to me when I was a teenager. The album that I cherished and treasured and still do to this day was Get The Knack. But a lot of people only sort of think of The Neck as the one album wonder bullshit. They put out six albums and we're going to be covering stuff about all of those albums.
0: Yeah. Uh,
2: yeah, that's where we're going to go. Uh, my guest is bass player for The Knack, Prescott Niles. Welcome to Love That Album Prescott.
1: It's a pleasure and I, I am very happy to be here with you. And again, Australia was a great beginning for us when we were touring with the, before the album came out and we had a wonderful experiences there too. And we had a great Aussie producer. Mike Chapman, that's right. Yeah, Mike was wonderful.
2: Well, so the first thing I actually wanted to ask you, and this may be an unusual place to go, but you've already sort of brought up the Australian connection, was I Remember listening here in Melbourne to radio station three XY?
0: On here,
2: 3xy, twenty three to two, and I think that your simulcast with the gig that you did here in Melbourne at Bombay Rock, I recorded it off the radio and played that tape to death. And it was also, besides the gig, there was also some stir because at one point Doug Wetton said to the audience, "You're having a great time. We're having a great time too. We're having a fucking gas." And I don't think I mean nowadays you can say anything you want on the radio, but at that time it was a big deal.
1: Apparently, you can say the Oscars. Yeah, you can do anything these days. That, I didn't even remember that. But it's quite a night. And we were the first, and I've reminded other people from your country in interviews that they didn't know that. That was the first simulcast to New Zealand, if I remember correctly. I still have the poster, by the way, in storage. It's a big poster. I'll find it and I'll put the picture, okay?
2: Oh, please. I'd love to see that. Actually, that'd be cool for me to advertise this episode of the podcast.
1: By the way, that club, it was rocking, man. And it was wonderful play there that night. I'm glad it became a memory of yours. That's fantastic.
2: What else do you remember of the night? I mean, because I know that at the time it was a big whirlwind and you were doing gigs all over the world and there was a whole lot of excitement and all that. But I guess from my hometown, i got to know, was there anything that you remember specifically about that show?
1: Well, Australia was unique. I believe we first went to New Zealand, which was maybe a good way to appreciate Australia better. When we got there, it was funny because they, they were passing out this flyer about the knack, the knack at, at their peak, the biggest band in the world at their peak. We just started. I like <laughs> (laughs) but it was a weird thing but um, New Zealand was fun I think we played in Auckland first by the way and then we went to Australia I believe we were number one somewhere Uh, I believe yeah obviously the album was out but we were number one which added to the excitement we weren't the Beatles it wasn't like they closed the streets or you know we just I mean we were new really and I just remember it was exciting because I mean I had never been to Australia no dream that I would be New Zealand as well but in a different way of course because that was like like the end of whatever you go into after that but uh, i enjoyed the people but getting to australia was really like getting to the big city it's like going from detroit to, to new york it's that's like a mega uh, you know uh melbourne of course and it was wonderful show i do remember that i don't remember the after of it but i know it was exciting and of course doing countdown <laughs>
2: Uh, was fantastic that interview with Molly Meldrum and yourselves is still up on YouTube
1: I saw it recently I forgot all about it it was wonderful the audience was wonderful we did a song I never knew we did before uh, Lucinda
2: did you perform that on Countdown?
1: I think we did huh. I think we did more than one song was fascinating because lucinda was possibly going to be a single not really but it appeared somewhere but that was exciting that night, it was fantastic. And uh, I, I believe we did that show. Now when we did that show, little did I know, you know Sally Boydens, right?
2: Yeah, 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 of course, yeah, young talent. Now, Sally
1: was on that show as the 14, 15 year old, like singer, right? And, and she became an actress. Who would know, years later, I became one of her dear friends and wrote songs with her. You
2: wrote yeah. some songs with her? I wrote
1: some songs with her, she's an excellent songwriter. She has a book coming out as well. I, I forget the name of it, Punctuation, I believe is the name of it. It's fascinating, she's very Literate. and we became friends and I, who knew when she told me she was on the show with us I couldn't believe it it's one of those moments where she's like 16 I was only 10 years old but it was fascinating it was a wonderful show but yeah so I met her of course and I had no idea she had, quite the, she had quite the legacy as an actress she never talks about it but she became a good friend so that's one of the real gems I got from Australia by the way meeting her so I had a great time in Australia fantastic uh, the people and I stayed at the Steeples uh, townhouse I believe I remember a certain memories, but I remember it was very cool being there and I I enjoyed it very much before we went to Japan. Mm. So that was really, really a a great memory, but I'm glad you remember it. (laughs) First album was what it was, the big, big thing it became. We should have had more singles, which I'll get into. So, what was it like for the second album? It's like I'm interviewing you now.
2: <laughs> <laughs> the second album, I remember chart wise, didn't do like the same sort well, of business as the first one, but I ran out and grabbed it the first available opportunity that I could. Okay, so this comes to a question I was going to ask you later, but I might as well ask you now. I heard rumors at the time that the band were wanting to record. Board their first album as a double so what effectively would have been get the neck and but the little girls understand as a double but capital put the kibosh on that is that true or is that bullshit no it
1: was a fable that doug created we were doing an interview a few years later and i was with burton i don't know how many years later it was and doug was going well the second album was really supposed to be a double album uh we decided it's better to do one up I, I kicked burton under the table i'm going where was i <laughs> And Burton goes. I was there. I don't know either. What are you talking about? I don't know why that was fun. Let me go back a minute. And also, the first album was perfect. Mike Chapman, being Mike Chapman, who I will extol in a moment, talk about his genius, what he did and what he didn't do, which is a true producer. We also did a song by Bruce Springsteen that Bruce gave to us because uh, Bruce Gary, I guess, had met him. It was called Don't Look Back. I don't know if you've heard One, that song. Two, three,
2: I can't recall it. No. Oh.
0: A face down a lonely street. Don't you straddle the shifter in my front seat. There's nothing to lose, it's a hard.
1: One of the Rhino's like retrospective albums, I believe, and it's a great, great song. It also came out on a reissue of a Capitol album uh, years later. So we did that song. Now it should have been on the album. Mike didn't feel it it fit because the writing style was different. You know, all the songs we recorded were the best songs we did. There was no question about adding or That was the only song we decided to add, possibly because it was a great song, but it didn't fit. We had met Mike. um I didn't realize who he was. Actually, I lived in England from 73 to 75, not realizing almost every hit on on, on the Top of the Pop show was written by Mike Chapman and Nicky Chen.
2: Well, it cooked for the Rack label, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, Rack Label and Susie Quattro, Sweet, Slade. I mean, there's all these pop things that Mike had written with Nikki. So I had no idea who he was. When we started working with him, well, when we were looking for producers, I guess his name came up and Mike really wanted to check us out because we're kind of a pop rock band. And he had, he had been working with Blondie Pryor. So that was a big, yeah, that sounds cool. And he came to see us and he thought we were one of the best live bands he's seen. And as a result, he said, look, guys, just get in the studio. I want to capture what you do live there's a lot of bands you know when you go in the studio it's about perfection it's about nailing the particular track the correct way mike was a believer and like you i want to capture what you do live and, you know, even complimenting our, our musicianship as a result. So that was the whole idea of going in. And when people call us one hit wonders, I always interrupt and know we're one take wonders. Now, as musicians, I'm very proud of that because we go in and we just start cutting. And we got we did the whole recording of the album in three days, literally. Mm. And then the mix was a few more days and then mastering. You know, we had the album done in two weeks. And I'm proud of Mike because as a producer... You know, Mike could have said, I've got a sound I always use. I've been with producers like that. You know, they go, I've got my sound, I've got my ideas for production, we're gonna go that way. And Mike basically had cashier to do that. But his approach was, no, you do you, and if there's anything we need, I'll mention it. So on uh, maybe tonight that ballad.
0: Make it rise, maybe
1: the only thing that was beatles in our career was that song, the Mellotron. But that was it. And I'll get into the Beatle comparison later. But that's pretty much it. That was a live song we did too, but that needed a little production, I think, to make it more interesting, you know? So Mike's approach was, I don't need to produce, produce. I don't have to be Mike Chapman. I can make this album as good as it's going to be by letting you guys be as good as you are. And I give him, that's in the first album, and I give him credit. We basically cut Sharona on a, thinking it was a run through because we go in like the second day and Mike would go, OK, let's let's run it down. Right. So we did Sharona and Mike goes, I got it. And we go, what do you mean? Can we hear it? He goes, no, let's." I got it. And we go, well, what do you mean you got it? We were just jerking around. I go, come in here. You know, sometimes the first take is magic. And if you if you have to overdub, you overdub. There's minor overdubs like Burton overdubbed a couple of minor things, Doug fixed a couple of notes, you know but Mike said to get a song like that from beginning to end without editing or punching in like sections is remarkable and that song I think the energy and besides it being a great song with a great hook I think the energy was captured it sounded live and we did it live so I'm very proud of that and I think that added to the uh, un- oh, underproduced compared to a lot of groups that were doing a lot of heavy production does
2: that make sense? Yeah completely look the thing that really excited me about that album at the time and still excites me is the production is the live sound because there's so many albums that came from the 70s that sounded like they were recorded in the next room it sounds like there's five thousand mattresses between the band and the microphones and this sounds absolutely fresh it sounds like a 60s album not just because of the music but because it sounds fresh and vibrant and you put that album on and it still does sound fresh and vibrant and that's to mike chapman's credit
1: yeah it doesn't sound dated is what we're saying and i'm so grateful it didn't have those certain like you know whatever they were using at the time. It sounds like we sound live pretty much. Mm. It, it may be a little cleaner, only because, you know, Mike got a great vocal sound as well. You know, he was the only one, Tell you the story real quick, he was the only one who said Sharona was the number one. You know, prior to the album being released, I wrote in my journal, and I said, okay, Mike, I'm going to hold you to it, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, Capital, when they got involved with us, and, you know, I'll go back in a moment and tell you about the uh, alleged Beatles prefabrication, which is a joke for a lot of reasons. Instead of Capitol... Instead of putting out a single first, a lot of record companies will basically put out a single to get people interested. Then they'll follow with the hit, and then the album will pick up steam. It's a lot. It's a formula. Mm -hmm. With us, uh, the album was given to radio. Sharona was not a single at first. Capital did not designate that as the hit. They just gave it to Radio, which is backwards, but it worked to our favor, believe it or not. And it became the most requested album, but Sharona became the most requested song in America. So Radio actually made Sharona the single, or the people that called in. So Capital, Rush, you know, Rush released the single. So the album became number one first, and then Sharona became number one. But I'm grateful because people heard the album. And I'm glad that people heard the whole album and not just Sharona.
2: And of course, they released the Sharona 45 with most of Burton's guitar solo. They the
1: solo. I was furious.
2: I can tell you from my memory, though, that at least Melbourne Top 40 Radio played the album version far more than they played the single version. I'm pretty sure I heard that full guitar solo more on the radio.
1: FM radio, until they started changing pro, whatever. They always played the full version.
2: We didn't actually have commercial FM radio when you guys had gone to release, Get the Knack, that was not for another year or so. So, But it was AM radio that was for once doing the writing.
1: Yeah, it's really odd. A lot of people knew that there was a full solo if they had the album. And unfortunately, on radio these days, you know, I drive and listen to you know, radio a like, lot, FM, whatever, and they do play the edited version, which I don't like very much. And even the TV shows we did back then, I believe we did the uh, 45 version, mm. did the time slot. I'm a big champion of Burton Never. He's one of the greatest pop guitar players ever. He can play anything and that solo and you know when people go you know my show is a pop song i defy anybody to have a solo like that on a pop song I hey, you very, very good. But when you have a a four and a half minute song and you've got a minute and a half solo, it better be damn good. And that peaked. And then you have a drummer like Bruce Garrett, who you've mentioned you're a big fan of. Mm. I had a lot of situations where I missed playing with Bruce. I played with him. Then he went to England to play with Jack Bruce for a short time. Then he came back to L.A. Then I ended up going to England with another group. Then he was supposed to come play with my group, but then he ended up playing with Jack Bruce again. So it was a lot of hit and miss with Bruce, you know, and he had called me and uh, was working with Doug and Burton and they said they needed a bass player Doug was going to go to rhythm and they wanted me to kind of look like McCartney and play like Whistle. and I raised my hand that's me meaning it could be John Anthony is one of my heroes and who was one of the favorite bands I've ever you know, favorite of favorite favorites you know and I had the great pleasure of seeing them a number of times in New York and man you know there's nobody that even goes there in terms of the power and the songwriting and everything but Bruce Bruce could be that but anyway he said yeah Prescott this is the opportunity to play with Bruce I would have joined any band at that time period but we started playing live the first gig we did was June 1st of 78 and after we did that show we shook hands and go okay we're going to do this thing we all felt that same something we never have with any other band or combination of music you know Doug and Burton had been writing songs as a songwriting team and they had made demo tapes and actually Capitol turned them down two years Earlier, and Good Girls do was one of the songs in the demo tape.
0: So, you fed his guys away while you're squeezing her. You thought you heard her saying Good Girls Don't, Good Girls Don't. Why should they tell I knew?
2: Now, for some reason, I had it in my head, and I know I'm wrong, but for the longest time I had it in my head that Good Girls Don't was a song that Doug had originally written in some form for his previous band, Sky, but I must be wrong about that. But I know that there was some Sky song I thought that the Knack ended up doing. Am I wrong on that Or
1: Yeah, I mean, wrong, but not wrong. We did rehearse other songs as we were, like, honing our stuff. A lot of the songs in Get the Knack were written as a band. Uh, That's What the Little Girls Do was a song he had written with Burton Pryor. Good Girls Don't, Doug got the, fo- the credit for writing the song himself Burden did help out itself the guitar part is brilliant and the verses by the way the little hook line uh, and that was passed on by Capitol most of the art, art war I don't know if you've heard that
2: song that yeah yeah my, yeah from uh, Rand Trip.
1: that's like a punk song if you really listen played with fucking brilliance but you know Doug was doing a Johnny Rot literally there's a video of us from the Whiskey Black and White he's doing Johnny Rot mm-hmm. you know Doug liked punk music that was a great punk song but that song wasn't on the album and, and as a group you know matured a lot of the songs songs were written based on this, the group sound like frustrated selfish especially i mean i played selfish with other drummers nobody had the bruce, feel bruce had. you know just the way he did the tom patterns the way he hit them and the dynamics of the band you know we could be in two bars we can go from piano you know soft to medium soft back to soft to almost loud and then killer on the chorus so there's a lot of dynamics in the band i believe and bruce was extraordinary and charona and wouldn't have been Sharona. If, you know, I have an early tape of us playing at the Starwood in LA and Bruce was playing more of a hi-hat down there you know, accenting mm. as we played it more he came up with the flam idea Burton had mentioned it because I guess going to a go-go by Smokey Robinson and the Miracles it was a little bit of a similar but the whole thing of that song in some drummers even I swear I played with somebody recently who did Sharona and going we aren't, why aren't you doing flams and he goes what do you mean I go <laughs> you learn the song and you don't know the whole thing's flam (laughs) and so when you really let that I mean yeah the bassline is what it is but that drum thing is signature and I don't know any song that started off like that by the way
2: Normally we're used to sort of hearing guitar riffs, but effectively you and Bruce went and wrote your own riff, your, your, the rhythm section riff before Doug and Burton come in.
1: Yeah, but it starts with the drums.
2: It starts with the drums and then you sort commit, of mi- yeah. mirroring what, what Bruce does. I just did a typical thing. I, I'm not
1: de- demeaning myself, but however, I mean, I played some great lines. That was pretty damn simple, but it, the, the drums really set it up.
2: That's another thing, just sort of thinking about that album, that first album, and I know we're going to come to some stuff From the other ones as well, because I love those other albums. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the thing that really hits me, like from the first time I listened to it, is that Bruce loves using his toms for setting up the pattern of the song. I mean, it's not like sometimes, you know, toms are used as color, they're used as fills. But like on My Sharona, Selfish, Frustrated, the toms are a major part of um, of the song's color. What what about Heartbeat? Heartbeat, yeah, of course. Although, mind you, Buddy Holly, you know.
1: rolling, but he's doing Keith Moon as Buddy you know what I mean? That's true. And doing yeah. a lot from Keith Moon. And- why, why do you
0: miss when my baby kisses me?
1: Let me out, by the way. A lot of people I've jammed with think they can play it. Also, number your name. I'm sorry to be such a fan. I can't help it. But number your name. The drum fills. The t- it's all it's all low tom, right?
2: Mm, that's true. Yep. 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 And
1: that's how the verse first starts. Bruce would do that a lot. Then go high, and he always went to the ride symbol, usually on choruses for
2: lift or in a bridge. He liked playing the bell of the ride symbol. Yeah, yeah, but it
1: worked because it changed the color of it. And you know, again, that album. You know, Good Girls Don't is not an easy song to play on drums either. It's a teenage. Da, 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 da. <clears throat> I'm sorry,
2: I'm such a sharing fan, but I'm in awe because you got to work with the great man. And as I have said before, we started recording this, i would be playing along with that album, you know, terribly. But at least yeah, it was yeah. something—it was something to aspire to.
1: And the weirdest song on the album, by the way, is Siamese Twins in terms of the lyric. Yes, but he's playing a very interesting cowbell part, if you notice, and how he changes each of the sections.
2: Christopher Walken would have approved.
1: He would have loved it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I gotta have more. Cowbell. And by the way, even in the middle of Selfish on the bridge, we're doing a fun part. He was doing this off thing high-I'm only mentioning all this to if anybody cares about the drum parts. You know, I should. it's very brilliant how we how we played it. Doug's vocals were were wonderful. So anyway, that album's a really reflection of the group playing together in LA for a year. And we made a hundred a night. A lot of people ask, well, what about the thing about capital and the Beatles? Or they start off with, we had was the fastest selling single since the Beatles. Right. I want to hold your hand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I get that. Yeah. But what does that mean? We were the Beatles. No, the only people that made us the Beatles was the press. Because, again, I say the simple, I would say the simple question. Well, how many singers do we have? One. How many did the Beatles have? Three. Uh, well, don't you think that alone is a disqualifier?
2: Although, and this especially comes out, I think, on albums like Zoom and Normal is the Next Guy. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot more emphasis on harmony singing, especially on the more lighter poppy type of songs. There's some gorgeous harmony sort of stuff.
1: Absolutely. And Burton, I give a lot of credit. Burton did a lot of vocal arrangements, mm. especially on Mr. Magazine, since you know that album. soon. We'll get to that. Mm-hmm but their vocal arrangement is fantastic and doug and burden both love the beach boys as well as other where you got these very interesting harmony parts going on so anyway i'm very happy so capital uh, was didn't even advertise they were one of the many record companies that wanted to 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 sign us you know playing in la we had the good fortune of having people like eddie money tom petty bruce springsteen by the way i posted something recently it's a live recording of us doing mona and not fade away with bruce springsteen who joined us on stage and uh, ray manzarek we did a you do our songs and Steve Stills jammed with us as well so I think we were the only band in LA where musicians thought it was cool to jam with us I don't know of any pop band that had people of that caliber jam with them,
2: if that makes any sense to you. Yeah, no, I, I remember at the time, those were the stories that we were hearing. Like you know, yeah, but we went on the them.
1: The record companies, we were not signed. Nobody had any favors. Bruce knew Manzarek. But as as the Troubadour, as it started to spread of this new thing, people want maybe we mentioned it and people wanted to jam with us because we great musicians.
2: We hear a lot about the LA punk scene of the time, yeah. you know, 79, 80, and you know, bands like X and the Blast. Yeah. were playing a lot together and th- I mean, I know you've sort of gone and told about these bigger rock artists who came on stage to jam with you, but who were your fellow travelers? Who did you do gigs with? or Who did you share bills with? Were you playing with X?
1: No, no, we didn't. We were. We had strange combinations. I remember whenever we went to San Francisco, we played with different people. I'm trying to remember the guy's name. He was very popular. But after we opened for people, they didn't want us to open for me. <laughs> I'm just saying I'll remember his name in a moment, but uh, yep. He was a good guy. We went up to Frisco. We played. We opened for the police before our album came out.
2: Wow! Okay. In
1: San Francisco, and you know, I, I of course thought they were incredible. Now, he's Stuart Copeland's a great drummer. Uh,
2: another hero of mine. But
1: they played differently, but I think as time went on, I think Bruce resented his success. And Stuart's great, different style, different approach. But I think they both respected each other very much. We played in Paris, and we our album wasn't out. We we played uh, Ian Drury opened. Oh, wow. Right. Hit me with your, you know, rhythm stick. Yeah. And we played, and then, God, we're knocked off a, a Straight. Die straight. straight. Yeah. So we we did kind of a slotted with different bands at the time. I'm, I'm jumping around, but you'll like this. Now Sammy Hager was very big in San Bernardino. So we had gotten a call prior to the, the week, and Sammy Hager was doing this big show. So one of the groups that was supposed to open canceled. So we were slotted to open. Now, nobody knew us yet, and this was not maybe the thing for a pop band play. If you you know compared to Sammy Hager. now the audience wasn't told that they had a different band opening. I forget who it was supposed to be, but they were a hometown thing. So it was, as we're getting on stage, my, I'll never forget this memory. Everybody has their lighter, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So as soon as we go get on stage and they put the lights on us, you see all the things being blown out. <laughs> all the all the eulogies are gone. <laughs> so we start playing, and because we're, we we look you know white shirts, black ties, we're not cool rock guys. You you know, we're pop rock, right? So people started booing and throwing shit at us by the third song. So we looked at each other like, okay, we're going to get them. As we're playing, by the time we got to the end of the set, we not only managed, but we got them with standing applause by After Sharona so things like that built our character it it wasn't like everybody we played for loved us it it wasn't that script wasn't written for us Uh, until we had the album out we were just another band that played really well and maybe if Sharona wasn't Sharona it would take two albums to be successful I don't know and you know I look back and I'm grateful that things happened the way they did so and again to be respected as musicians was maybe record companies like that idea so we had a number of record companies bidding for us I mean an interview the other day said Capital offered the most money to than any other arts. Well, that's BS. Polygram offers millions of signs. Right. And even by, back then, we knew if you borrow a million, you're going to owe a million and a half. And Capital only offered a hundred grand, which is nothing. I get a record deal in 72 with Velver Turner, who I'll get into later. I in want to
2: ask you about him. Yeah. We
1: got a hundred thousand dollar deal to come to LA. So we took a, a lower deal because we Capital was, all the people that had worked for their company saw us play live. So we felt like they were extended family. They weren't looking for the Beatles, but we knew everybody from the secretaries to the middle people, to the A&R guy, you know and, and Zimmerman the head of Capital really thought we were terrific. So that's why we signed with Capital, by the way.
2: Okay, so you've you've gone and mentioned Velvet Turner. I'd like to ask a few questions about you, about your pre-NAC life. I only found out like in terms of prep for this discussion about Velvet Turner and I had to listen to that album, which you're playing bass on, and absolutely blew my mind. Now I believe that, so Velvet was like friend of Jimi Hendrix and Jimi really, really liked him and taught him some stuff and post Hendrix's death, Velvet went and put out this album called the Velvet Turner Group. Tell me a little bit about him and How you came to work with him, and was he collaborative? Just anything you got. This, but this album is terrific.
1: Well, thank you. And and by the way, there's two versions of it because what people did over the years is they they found it and they started putting it out in England and in Germany and other countries. Now they one they called one thing the soul. I got a double. There was something that made in England. to get the record. You know what? No, I'll show it to you. But anyway, I have it with me. I carry it. Mm -hmm. Do you ever see the album cover? You've seen it, right? I've seen the Uh, album cover. Yes. Yes. Okay. So this one company put out a double CD they called one the soul mix and one the rock mix, okay? The soul mix is not a soul mix. It had more bottom end and we were when we first did the album, there was a couple of songs we re-recorded because we felt we had a better version of, okay? Mm-hmm. Four songs. One of the songs I wrote too, Strangely New by the way, and that bass line is pretty cool. I was trying to be John, Ron Wood and John Ann whistle by the way. <laughs> Ron Wood was with Jeff Group, and I love Jeff Beck group mm-hmm. I saw him twice and Ronnie Wood was a great bass player. A lot of people have no idea what I'm talking about so we recorded those songs now we were signed to okay interesting i was at woodstock the year in 69 right mm-hmm. and uh, i have a long story about that some other time uh so here i am in the audience and michael lang put woodstock together i had met velvet in 68 he auditioned for a group i was playing in in brooklyn that's where i'm from by the way so he was auditioning as a lead singer for a blues grant and i kept looking at him he was like a tall jimmy he's 6'3 but he hunched open. i kept looking at him, and i said where'd you get those clothes from man What'd of hell you look like Jimmy he goes no man it's like you know Jimmy lent you the clothes what are you talking about now velvet six three jimmy's five ten, and the shirt coming up to his <laughs> fucking naval right so and I'm from Brooklyn I go what are you talking about he said you know Jimi Hendrix he goes yeah I do but I'm thinking no fucking way so we started he said you play guitar he goes yeah so I said play some. so he actually played Foxy Lady now nobody I knew in Brooklyn knew the chords Foxy Lady I'm going okay you can play what's up so we, we became friends we started talking on the phone so in 68 Jimmy played Phil on a call on Thanksgiving in 68 and the developer said hey I got tickets you want to come down we'll do the show, and then there's a party gonna be for Jimmy's 25th birthday. And I go, Yeah, sure. Because I'm taking the train ride I'm going, this guy's full of crap, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, come on, right? Jimi Hendrix, who's a god. Now I saw Jimmy before I met Valver Fillmore. So I was still in awe of Jimi Hendrix. Seeing him on stage, I can't explain what he what it was, because it was you never knew. But whatever he did, nobody else could do like he did it, you know, mm-hmm. let alone his songwriting. So I went to see see jimmy play film on which is brilliant it was a classical music hall so the sound was excellent and then we're went uptown to the i think it was uh uh, uh, uh the treaty club perhaps one of those clubs and literally i'm there standing 15 feet from jimmy at his birthday party of course i was petrified didn't say a word i felt like a girl wanted to meet an actor you know what i mean i'm a movie star, right? I just said, hey, so after that, Belvert had a credibility. So we started playing together. I did meet Jimmy twice with Velvert, but just like being with Velvert and you know, hey, what's up? You know, I mean that was the extent of it. I think I might have jammed with him. Now I know you you go, why would I? Because it was a place called Langano's up in uh, up midtown Manhattan. And people would jam there at 2, 3 in the morning like I did it to Steve Paul scene. So I would get, I had the, the the nerve to go up there and sometimes do a blues song with somebody. It's dark, so I'm playing. And Velvet told me later that Jimmy played something. I was petrified to begin with. I mean, I'm 18 and I'm up there thinking I'm great. I was playing bass for two months. But I was a fast learner. And so whatever that was, I probably was frozen anyway. So, but I did jam with people. So anyway, meeting Jimmy a couple of times was extraordinary because he was bigger than life. And after seeing him at Woodstock, becoming this icon to the world was pretty amazing. You know, Mm -hmm. I went to California that summer and uh, that's when Jimmy died. And both of us couldn't believe it because Jimmy seemed immortal. And you can well imagine because nobody was dying back then at that age. There was a trend that started, but still it was like, how can somebody die at 20, 27, 25, 20? 20, you know, nobody was doing that. Heroin addicts, the beat poets in Manhattan might've been doing But not pop stars. It was too new. Brian Jones, but everybody knew he was kind of had problems. You yeah. know I mean? It was nuts, but that maybe wasn't even an overdose. So Velvet and I had played together before. So when Velvet, when we found out Jimmy died, I flew back to New York And uh, we we got a lot of interest to cut a demo So we went in and we cut a demo of the song Then Michael Lang, who was a million miles away from me Wanted to sign us to his label Think how weird that is to be some kid a year before And now we're going to Woodstock to sign a record deal Now this is because Jimmy had passed away But, you know, because now Velvet was, you know Possibly had something to do with Jimmy We did a demo, we got a $100,000 record deal Tom Wilson
2: was going to produce us Wow I didn't yeah. realize
1: who Tom Wilson was
2: Simon and Garfunkel, Bob Dylan
1: Well, Velvet Underground
2: Velvet Underground, yeah, yeah, yeah He
1: did jazz, but I knew he was special But I had no idea So we started recording I'm just giving you a quick and then we started recording and Velvet was good and the songs were good but he wasn't Jimmy and people kind of lost interest right Tom Wilson was going yeah well he, he disappeared more in the sauna with some of his hookups so to speak
2: Were you happy with the album? Were you happy how it
1: sounded in the end? After we initially had the album done Michael Lang sold some. the record company wasn't doing well so Family Productions which uh, somebody named Artie Rip was president he also was working with Billy Jollett so he took over the contract we re-recorded Four songs That came out On this label Now I thought It was good But it didn't get Any promotion And you know What happens I mean it was an album I'm glad we did it The group kind of Broke up That's when I Started traveling I went to Boston I went to England So that was the End of Velvet For the time Now I still Was friends with Velvet And he was one Of my my best friends And you get a lot Of great stories About that Without Velvet I wouldn't have Gone backstage To all the clubs That nobody would Have ever let me in Because I met Velvet And he knew Jimmy I'd get into places That I never could have so I, I I was like a college education I knew what it was like to be in a rock band I knew what the girls were like backstage I knew what how managers talked to people it was really going to college because I observed a lot and, and because of that I had privy to a lot of great things I wouldn't have had otherwise so we did the album with Velvet and then I had a chance to travel the album didn't do anything years later what somebody did is they brought Velvet into the studio thanks for listening because I'm just giving you a heads up on this so they asked Velvet to overdump some guitar. It takes stereo, they made it mono, put that on the left, and Velvet's overdubs were on the right. So that sucked.
2: That's a very early 60s thing, isn't it?
1: Yeah, but they did this... I wasn't around when he did it. Somebody probably, because he also did a thing about uh, Electric Ladyland, too, being that he was interviewed, because he was at some of the sessions, by the way. And so what they did was it was sucked. They call that the rock mix. And I hear it, I go, this stinks. Because Velvet didn't originally play that, plus it, it squashed the stereo. The soul mix, allegedly, is great, because it's the full mix without the overdubs. And you can really hear now. Bruce, now Tim uh, McGovern was our drummer. Later on, he played guitar for the Motels,
2: by the way. Oh, wow. Okay.
1: And married her, and I've seen him recently. He's a great guitar player.
2: Another Capital Act.
1: Yes, exactly. I think they was signed pretty much after So is Missing Persons. We'll get to later. Right, sure. But his drumming, if he didn't play drums in that, he was he played Mitch Mitchell stuff but in his own way. That's why the album is as good as it is, by the way, in my opinion. His drumming is fantastic. And it, it without that, I mean my bass playing was good, but man, his drumming carried it. Family Production released a vinyl on record day four years ago. And hearing it, I am proud of it because it's the first album I did. And Velvet wrote some really good songs. Madonna, the opening song, is a pretty
0: cool Um. song.
1: Excuse Me Gentlemen very really very cool and
2: that's when Velvet was trying to sing like Mick Jagger I can't remember what song it is but there is at least one or two songs where his vocal style he's definitely trying it sounds to me anyway that he's trying to bring Jimmy in his vocal. well he style.
1: sounded like Jimmy had the same quality and he did sound when I play it they don't even listen to the guitar playing to go it sounds like Jimmy singing
2: yeah yeah yeah
1: so Velvet had a good voice and, and anyway so that's the saga of okay I gotta say one more thing you're gonna love it so I stopped playing with Velvet uh, I uh, went to England to live there in 70, uh, uh, middle part of 73. And that's when I saw a lot of the great groups, you know, that was happening in those years. I met, because I met Rose Taylor, I got to meet George Harrison, which I did a session with later. Jagger, I went to his house and heard outtakes of um, Ghost Dead too. And hearing some of, because I met Rose Taylor, because I, I ended up playing chess with Mick Taylor. I was 19, right? I got to jam with Mick Taylor, which was for me a dream. I just played blues things. He was a brilliant guitar player. By the
2: Which way. is where his heart was at, really. That's why he, he supposedly great. left the I knew
1: who he was. And so I, I met a lot of cool people. And and just anyway, I met this girl at the speakeasy with a very famous London club, German blonde hair. went home with her and I was thinking it's going to be a great night. I'm looking at mail. You don't know where this is going. This is going to blow your mind. So I'm looking at the coffee table and I'm seeing letters. I'm going, Monica, 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 Daniel. The- oh, shit. So that's the girl, Jimmy. That's the bed of the girl Jimmy died in.
2: Oh, my lord.
1: Not the same apartment she moved out. Now, I immediately said, oh, my God, this is the girl Jimmy was seeing the night he died. I was his girlfriend.
2: Did you leave immediately?
1: You're damn right I did. Not because I was worried. Part of me wanted to go. Oh, listen, I kind of know. So what happened? Or how come, how long did you see not? Nah, I couldn't wait to leave and call Velvet. Okay. Can you imagine? You now I had you know calling England. I mean America from England was a lot of money. I had to borrow money to call Velvet. And I told him he screamed literally on the phone. <laughs> I said, I had to leave Velvet because it was like the fact that Jimi Hendrix died in her bed. Anyway, so there's my Jimi Hendrix tie-in. Because he died, we got the record deal. The person he died with, I meet. So I'm sure nobody else could tell that story.
2: You heard it here first, folks.
1: That was the Velvet thing. So the album's come out. I am proud of it. That was the first album I played on. And a lot of people like it, like yourself. But I I hope Mm. they hear the better version of it, just to hear that. But because of Velvet, I got to meet a lot of people and have memories that I, I certainly wouldn't have had if I was just a kid from Brooklyn. Also, our first drummer we had in Brooklyn was Mark Bell
2: who ended up playing in the Ramones, by the way. Oh, wow. Okay. Oh, Marky. He was
1: like the first drummer we played with. And he was a great drummer. But-
2: yeah, look, I've, I watched a video that uh, he made. Like It was something that was one of the bonus features on the Ramones End of the Century documentary, I think. And yeah. he's he's talking for a few minutes about, he's saying, oh, you know, a lot of so-called really professional drummers, they think that they're something special because they can do all this jazz stuff and they can do all this really tricky stuff and I can do that shit. And he goes and shows some really fancy jazz Jobs and he says but they can't do what I do which is for an hour they can't do that for more than 30 seconds so
1: one of the reasons we played with Mark is the only
2: drummer in Brooklyn that could play like John Bonham if he wanted to after having seen that little video I 100% believe that that's he's
1: really he was really good do you know he had a twin brother who played guitar
2: no I did not know that
1: yeah it was pretty trippy by the way but Mark was great so anyway just now that's the Velvet story but he was a dear friend of mine by the way it wasn't just playing I didn't move away and it, I was very, he was very proud that I achieved success with a band like The Knack it, as a dear friend. It, it meant a lot to him personally, so me as well. He, he passed away, unfortunately, uh, in like 2002, I believe.
2: I want to ask about another rock luminary that you ended up playing with and I believe the rest of the band play with, which was Arthur Lee of Love.
1: Yeah, yeah. I got a chance to play with Arthur Lee. He had a TV show in LA he was going to do and I met somebody who played with I think it was the drummer at the time. So he brought me in. I rehearsed with Arthur. Arthur, Arthur was going through one of those uh, extreme drug issues where he'd like play some songs and then he'd just fall to the floor and laugh or act crazy, you know? So I did a TV show with him. And at that time, the record company wasn't sure if he can tour. And I got an offer to go with somebody to Boston. Somebody I had met who had some gigs in Boston. He liked me. And I said, if you give me a round trip ticket, I'm going to go. So that's what I did. And I also played with Randy California as well. Randy was brilliant and a lot of had, but he knew Bruce Gary because of Bruce Gary. I played a couple of shows with him and and that was early on before he came but anyway so Arthur Lee was pretty funny but he was losing his mind the album was called Vindicator I believe
0: Let jumped through my window last night and left pen pay-
2: The thing is, like, probably a lot of people who heard of Love years after the fact, my introduction was via Forever Changes, and then you go back to the earlier stuff, and you think, yeah. wow, this is a million miles away from Forever Changes, and part of his brilliance, or at least the songwriting brilliance on, on that album, is they're not your standard verse, chorus, verse, chorus pop songs, it's pretty much like, almost like, oh, like, I don't even know how to describe it, but it's, I'll go here, now I'll go here, now I'll go here, it's sort of like, every song is going somewhere in a non-structured way, right. but it still works as great pop songs.
1: Well, who would ever think that Little Red Book was written by Bert Bacharach? Uh, yes,
2: yeah, absolutely. My favorite people are arrangers because a song, yeah, yeah. A, a songwriter, you know, you, you bring something into the world and that's something to be praised. But someone who can listen to something and say, I'm going to do something different with that, really, full respect.
1: And that showed you what, you know, how they turned it around. Just awesome. And just saying, so Love was One of Us and The Doors, of course, I had seen, they were very unique. And the sound, again, producers and groups were able to be unique before they were big money makers and everybody had expectations and wanted to pigeonhole their style. That's just an option. Anyway, that happened to us too, by the way.
2: I want to talk about covers. You've already gone and mentioned that you did Heartbeat on the first album, The Hard Way by the Kinks on the second album, on the video that you do live at the Carnegie Hall. You're doing a version of Hard Day's Night there. Go bring in the Beatles connection again. Well, that was like, that was an FU to the critics out there. I'll explain that later. Okay. You did a version of Nowhere to Run by Martha and the Vandellas. Yep. You got Uh, it. On the House of Blues album, which I promise I want to come to, you do a medley of Tequila and Break On Through, and you do Last Train to Clarksville. Now, considering how, how many artists over the years have said, we're just going to take time out, we're going to do a, a covers album because these are the songs that influenced us to become musicians in the first place. Was there ever any talk of you guys just saying right, we're just going to do a whole covers album?
1: Well, if, if they took our output over the years, we'd have two albums.
2: So what else did you guys do?
1: In the beginning, we did come a little bit closer, During the Americans. Mm-hmm. We did that. There's an album they released live on uh, Omnivore Records. It said the Knack in 68 or 68, no, 78, 78 in L.A., so we did that song, Come a Little Bit Closer, which was a great song. We did it our way. We did, If You Want Me, It's Alright, and I'm fake. If You Want Me, It's Alright.
2: Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So, I, in fact, I think you guys did that at the 3X1, the, the Melbourne gig. Because oh, we did. I'm pretty sure I remember hearing that on the live uh, radio broadcast and tape it. So, yes, I do remember that. And
1: that was a cover we did. Now, the thing was, because when we jammed at rehearsal, we go off and jam, Bruce and I and Burton. And Doug, we, we knew every song. I mean, we just you know we play it so a lot of the times we throw things in the sets earlier on uh we love the kinks
2: by the way i mean they were great no, that's no secret
1: whenever we were rehearsal now tequila break on through was sometimes you know we just jam a rehearsal right sometimes we did dora songs which we ended up doing with man's eric we did love me two times we did whiskey bar which is a great encore song uh, there's a live thing of us doing that i think on a reissue of the second album we always come up with things we did uh beatles we did um sometimes we do and i have a lot live tape somebody sent us and you're very we did everybody's got something to hide but me and my monkey which is our favorite song <laughs> You can't do that. Uh, Later on, there's a live thing about CBGBs. We did lawyers, guns and money. We loved him. We did Cinnamon Girl, which is a live thing. It's on Doug's. They released a Doug Figer album, but they had
2: some live tracks we did. You guys, you ought to search out these tapes and put this out. We did
1: Hendrix. We did Are You Experienced?
2: Oh, man.
1: Live at CBGB. You can watch it. Without Bruce, Billy warwick is a great New York drummer, by the way. But when we did it, we did it at Berkeley. When Doug would break his string, he was like, great, and we jammed. jam. <laughs> that was the cue. I mean, we do anything. Burden would start. I mean, we could do Cream Song. We, we did Crossroads. We could do anything. Because again, we were real musicians We weren't just limited I mean, we loved Jeff Beck And Doug would go off And we, we literally, I mean Last train to school, We always screwed around with It just ended up, we did it that night uh, We did that song, with Dave Edmond's song uh, I Knew the Bride We did that live And we did this on our album With Terry Bozzi Zoom it, It's on that album uh, Well, actually, it's on Rhino's. We did covers And they, they put that on a separate album Not on the, that album But there was like Rhino Gold or something But the knack and retrospective and we did an F song. So we basically did what we wanted to do, and we were good enough where we could pull it off. And, and Tequila Break On Through, I mean, we would jam on Break On Through, and one day, Burns, Burns, a great slide player, which he never gets credit for.
2: The end of the game, that's him doing Thank a slide on Thank
1: you so much. Thank you. That's brilliant guitar playing slide. And so uh, we're playing now that's one of the fastest songs. I play along with myself anyway, just to remember what I played and get in shape. That song's a real MF to play. Oh yeah, Bruce, Bruce! (laughs) (laughs) And he's still pushing it. And Wave Up 2 is another song like that, which is original, but uh, that's another song. We could start at one tempo, we speed it up, and it comes right back to the same tempo. That's a real gift to be able to do that. Bruce was like that. You know, fantastic. So again, and we did um, a Traveling band too by Credence Clearwater. Oh, nice, nice. We do that life. So, in other words, yeah, I would love to put something together. We did a Hard Days. Now we did Come On Everybody at Carnegie Hall, which is, you know, <laughs> was Cochran. Eddie Cochran song. Yeah, so we just love music and we could throw it in, literally. Another thing that was unique about us to a degree is we could do that. And, and I love covering songs we grew up with that were fantastic songs. You know what I mean? We could do a Burt Bacharach song.
2: One of the truly great songwriters of the 20th century. Yeah,
1: I mean, we can riff on anything. So, anyway, that's why. Again, not that anybody cares, but I'm proud of the fact we were we can do that. You know, we we did Carnegie Hall when we did Hard Day's Night. Doug started but before we did that he started quoting Dylan mm-hmm. sometimes they are a change about the critics and their pens you know right putting him down and then we did Hard Day's Night he goes fuck them this is for you <laughs> that went over real well with the New York Times get it Doug don't think your foot in your mouth leave he did a great show don't screw it up I tell the critics to go screw themselves All right. anyway uh, it, uh, that was we. of course the Beatles the Stones the Who all those great groups always influenced us
2: there was an LA band called Wonderments, which sort of got absorbed into Brian Wilson's yeah, yeah, band, yeah, yeah. and their albums, particularly their album, Barley, sounds to me yeah. like what you guys were doing, which was absorbing everything that you love. It was all their songwriting, but you had, you know, their Who-influenced song, they had their Beach Boys, obviously, influenced songs, they had Very their Kinks-influenced so, yeah. song, like, uh, and it sounds to me like, you know, they adopted the same sort of thing that you guys did. You weren't just Beatles, or you loved all this music, and why wouldn't you take everything into it?
1: Well, we were the Song of We were radio. We were pop radio. You could on the playlist of what people played that we the top 20 of the 68, 69, 70, 71. You'd be amazed to have they play all those different groups and different music. We love Black music. I mean, there's an outtake from serious final. where we do a blues song. Down with the Blondes, it's fucking great. Burton was a great blues player. Doug can sing blues too. So anyway, I'm just saying I love the versatility, not only of us, but the music scene at the time. And, you know, again, I, I think that's part of the NAC legacy. And just mentioning drummers having played with, you know, uh, Billy Ward on Fun. I don't know if you're familiar with that album.
2: I have heard it. That's probably the album I've listened to the least because the production on that is sort of thought. Just for me, I thought I'd love to have heard those songs paired back at least production-wise.
1: John was friends with Doug from Detroit, right? So we called him, and he said basically all those takes were really done pretty quick. By the way, again, we didn't screw around. They invented a musicianship was such, and the uh, Rocket of Love became an FM hit, by the way, and which I mean a top ten, whatever. Who cares? But they, it was memorable. And then the record company didn't, we didn't get a chance to get the video out because Red Company felt, you know, lost their stuff. So again, a failed chance, but that album was good. Don was trying to make us a little more relevant, and I think the drum sound, it's well, well produced, and I, my favorite song was A Serious Fun, One Day at a Time, It could have been a good single, and Rocker it Love. All right Baby One shot
0: ecstasy.
2: Coming back to the issue of covers, I want to sort of like, turn it around now. Yeah, yeah. Um, Now, obviously, my Sharona has been covered and parodied to death, but were there any other covers of Knack songs by artists that you particularly like? Now, there was one that came to my attention when it was, I don't know, three years ago or so. It was uh, one year during Hanukkah where yeah. uh, Dave Grohl went and, did every night a different Jewish songwriter and I get frustrated
1: I know now that song should have been Our next single by the way I love that song.
2: Heard you say previously in an interview that you'd submitted your song "Harder on You" for consideration to the film "That Thing You Do," and I actually heard a version online of the knack doing "That Thing You Do," which was you know just wonderful, gorgeous pop. But tell me a little bit about that whole thing—how you came to submit that song.
1: Well, I had written—you know—I was living in Malibu at the time, which was a great place. I I was friends with Bill Hudson, you know, from the Hudson Brothers.
0: Mm. And
1: I wrote "Harder on You" previously, but I knew they were collecting songs that thing you do because Bill knew some publishers so they're still looking for songs so I had cut that song actually I demoed it with Bruce on drums believe it or not Mm -hmm. so I brought it into Bill's studio I said can you do a vocal for me he's a great singer right so he did a vocal we actually it's a demo track we sent it in but they had all the songs already for the movie And that's why we didn't get it on there. It would have really worked well, but it didn't happen. So when we started doing Zoom, it was a great album because we were all working together, just Burton, Bruce, and myself. Not Bruce, I mean uh, Doug, because Bruce had quit again. And then we gave him a chance to come back, but he did. Long story, I'll get into that tomorrow. Or tomorrow. So um, I played it for Burton first because I knew Doug had his ego, and I don't want to fucking deal with him. So I said to Burton, hey, he said it's a great song. So he says, I think maybe we can add a little bit in the bridge to make it more knackish. And I said, well, great. So I did give... Birden uh, half songwriting credit but uh, you know I, we could have done it the way I wrote it but I felt he was right so Doug when he heard it goes fuck yeah so he actually did some, did it live before we recorded it and I thought it was it, it was Rhino if they ever got their stuff together might have released it as a single but they never got that far they never promoted the album fortunately.
2: it's unusual because like Rhino were mostly known as a reissue label That's I just right. think I'd ever heard of anything of them doing like a new album
1: so as we're touring with the great Terry Bozier which I'll get into next time we talk some the idiot of Terry who loved it and we were close again we cut that song and Rhino didn't get it into Tower Records and as a result nobody knew about it. So that might have been a single as, as, as fate would have it. There was a lot of good songs in that album. I'm really proud of the album. The songwriting, craft was excellent, by the way.
2: Mm, I agree.
1: Later, for that later album, I mean, Normal was not as normal as thing. I'll talk about that, but it wasn't very good, comparatively speaking. And Zoom had a lot of really good songs. And by the way, we did No Matter What, we recorded it for A Bad Thing of Tribute. We did a really good tribute of that. And uh, we did that thing you do with your Girls talk which was also
2: in the Rhino release Elvis Costello song and you know I mean so we there, there's more covers we'll pause for a quick break Prescott's gonna go have a cup of coffee I'm gonna go have a cup of coffee and then we're going to come back and we're going to talk more about the knack and we have to we
1: got to talk about England living in England and when experience that is a meeting from comparison.
2: anywhere you want to take it Prescott I'm looking forward to it so we'll be back in a moment I know
0: it's going be-
2: To many film fans, this is seen as a classic film quote. Louis, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. This one is too. You talking to me? Over at C here, however, we're very fond of this one.
1: How many times do I have to tell you? No pizza for you, Joey.
2: Not to mention this one.
1: Greece is the best, man.
2: <laughs> what makes us different to other film discussion podcasts? Tim, Bernie and I talk about films that are music-centric. Ours is the only podcast that has found the link between Hated, The Gigi Allen Story, Ishtar and Yellow Submarine. As well as Roundtable Film Talk, we also speak with directors of music films about their work. So if you love music and you love films, join us at See Here, that's s Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts proudly part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Even Mozart likes the show. Welcome back to episode 157 of Love That Album. I'm continuing my chat here with Bassist of The Knack and of the Velvet Turner Group and of Arthur yes. Lee, Prescott Niles. Yes, thank
1: you again for um, for playing with me, <laughs> literally, and enjoying this. Thank you so much.
2: Before we started recording, I made mention to you that a guest on my other podcast, See Here, was the great Alan Arkush, who directed Rock and Roll High School, and he told me that That while he was still at NYU Film School, he was working at Fillmore East in New York. And I believe that you, as a teen, had spent many hours, uh, many shows at Fillmore East. Now, I want to get a feel for some of the shows that you attended, what the venue was like to me. Because, I mean, on this side of the world, we have heard of Fillmore East. We know how legendary it is. But, you know, not growing up in New York, it was not a venue I could ever attend. I do want to ask you about one specific show. I don't know if you attended it, but Alan was telling me about one of the shows that he was working at was the who playing at Fillmore east and there was a scenario where i think the building across the road had caught fire you and got it no were you in were you in attendance at that show
1: i was not there that night but townsend i had a thing that that happened at, at woodstock as well which we could touch on Where the fire commissioner, I guess Townsend didn't know about a fire when he got on stage. And Townsend said, as happened before, that's his territory. If anybody comes on the stage unannounced, he just kicked them off the stage. He didn't know about. It. Well, they arrested Daltrey, and him went to jail for that night, and they got bailed out the next morning. And then, of course, at Woodstock, there's that famous kick which I witnessed live, where Abby Hoffman got up stage and started talking all this crap, and Daltrey just booted him right off
2: the stage. I was going to ask if you'd seen that. Yeah,
1: I saw that, and it was remarkable because, again, you know, I understand, but he, he said he just is in a rage. Nobody can get up there and and say anything. So uh, the crowd loved it. it. It was one of those things that the, who were kind of unique in the fact that when they were on there they were serious even though they were comical and expressive and goofy that's another thing they had a great sense of humor to be able to play what they played seriously have a sense of humor made fun of themselves especially when they did a quick one while he's away uh which is one of the the first opera It's towns of the mini opera
2: is wonderful filled with humor and sarcasm and again as evidence in Rock and Roll Circus just phenomenal no wonder for years uh, the Rolling Stones didn't want to release the Rock and Roll Circus because they were afraid that The Who had gone and basically stolen the show they really didn't
1: I think the other problem was Brian Jones slept through the whole show so uh, <laughs> and by the way my son Gabe one of the reasons he wanted to play drums and he became a, was watching that as a child with, especially with the water on the toms you know that was uh, it was looked like so much funny but uh, anyway Fillmore changed it was something called the anderson theater first i saw the yardbirds with jimmy page play there probably is end of 67 68 so that was like my first real concert in terms of in manhattan mm-hmm. that anderson theater and they also released a live album too the yardbirds uh one of the they, they held it back for years and it came out Then they moved to Fillmore, or maybe that same theater became Fillmore. And the second show I saw was The Who. And that's when Townsend had a spangled jacket on. I remember the bass and whistle play was actually one he kind of modified to make it this weird thing. I was a big fan of I Can See for Miles, and that was one of the only tours they did it. So that blew me away. Now, when Fillmore started becoming regular, of course, uh, I'd do anything I could, you know, five bucks, six dollars to go there. was remarkable. And that, to me, was like an encyclopedia of... the music scene at the time I mean you had folk music you had Tim Harden playing you had Richie Havens who was I mean he was playing on the street too he was playing there uh, an incredible string band with their classical roots and then of course you had all the blues players Bill Graham was smart enough to introduce BB King Albert King Freddie King Buddy Guy I mean all these great blues players can't he play there you know as well as that part of the night he'd have in the mixed show where you have a bit of everything so Bill had a vision he was a tough guy. He had, he had San Francisco one going as well. So he was operating on both coasts. But he was so brilliant because he really brought the music, not only but he had the variety of it. It wasn't a variety show like they used to do before where everybody had 10 minutes. He would find a way to, to merge and have groups play with each other. That was remarkable. When I saw Jimi Hendrix for the first time, Sly Stone opened for him in 68. And it's like, wow, you know, I mean, how can he do this? And I saw Led Zeppelin, the first US tour when they opened for Iron Butterfly. And Iron Butterfly were booed unmercifully when they played after Led Zeppelin. Oh, man. Especially the poor drummer who had to play a drum solo.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Not an easy thing to follow Bonzo. No,
1: no. So then you had that. I saw, remember that song, Fire?
2: Uh, The Crazy World of Arthur Brown.
1: I am the God of Hellfire he played Fillmore and they actually lowered him from the ceiling with flames and like a like a cauldron that just blew me away I mean that was like from another planet Jefferson Airplane I was one of the earlier shows I saw too and I who cannot fall in love with Grace Slick in her miniskirt and Jack Cassidy was just an amazing bass player when he played he had a sound that was more pronounced than anybody at that time so that band had a big influence on me as well let alone uh, 10 years after before Woodstock would play there often and they were incredible. And Allman Brothers, of course, made it famous. I saw Delaney and Bonnie play there with Eric Clapton. I mean, think about that. And it was affordable, which is what to me was incredible. Bill passed away, of course, and had a legend of being a real hard ass, so to speak. But he really gave everybody in New York and and everywhere the ability to really get every style of music without having to go to three concerts.
2: I'm not 100% sure, but I'm presuming that they would have played Fillmore West at some stage. Did you ever get to see The Tubes? No,
1: they did though, but I didn't. I saw them when they were touring years ago. With Missing Persons, we did play with the re- revived
2: Tubes. Oh, they right. played a
1: couple of shows with us. Yeah, only a couple of players were in there, but they were great. They were
2: very unique, and, and certainly nobody could be like them, you know? It's just because you mentioned the crazy world of Arthur Brand, and I'm thinking, wow, what other theatrical rock bands? So they, well, duh, the Tubes.
1: Well, yeah, but he Arthur was just nuts. I mean, I found out later Peter Townsend actually produced some of the record. And Carl Palmer, I believe, played drums. Oh, wow. I didn't know. Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. And by the way, they were amazing, too. Uh, unique and special in terms of the. And I saw Keith Emerson in the Nice, which played Fillmore East as well. That's how I knew who they were. And I got to tell you a funny Velvet story. Velvet, because Velvet could sound like Jimi Hendrix when he wanted to, he would call Fillmore, ask to speak to Kip, one of the guys who was managers. And he'd go, hey, man, uh, you know, it's uh, Jimmy, you know, and Velvet's <laughs> coming Velvet's coming down there. So, you know, just uh, so we get in free all the time right <laughs> <laughs> okay one time velvet called this is i've told this before he goes yeah how you doing man keep goes okay hold on hey uh bill uh jimmy's on the phone and bill goes yeah and velvet's going uh yeah jimmy say hey motherfucker jimmy's right here ten feet away from me ever call again <laughs> you ever call again velvet i'll break your legs goodbye up. <laughs> Oh, How's classic. that being caught with your hand in, in the cookie jar? Oh, classic. But anyway, so that was, again, being able to go to Fillmore and be part. Of, and Jeff Beck, of course, was a big favorite of the group. And Rod Stewart, of course. The Unknown Rod Stewart became quite the amazing and iconic lead singer as well. And uh, it was just remarkable. So now that you're talking about Fillmore, and of course that branched out, there were other venues and places, but to me, that was the best combination of acts ever. And who were remarkable, as you know, in that album, by the way, who it leads, is the way they recorded that, which again, Townsend wasn't happy, they recorded every show, but that to me was the most amazing, the the recording quality and how they play still uh, is is a benchmark for everybody. Buddy, you know,
2: for any band that we hear that them say, yeah, they were better in a live context. But I think that the Who it's interesting because we were speaking before we started recording that one of our very favorite albums is The Who Sell Out. Absolutely yeah. marvelous piece of work. And yet you would never say, unless you knew. You wouldn't know that it was the same band on Who Live It Leads and the Who Sell Out. One's a baroque pop band, and one's like a proto-metal force of nature.
1: Well, that's exactly it. And when they even did Tommy, Kit Lambert, who was managing and producing them, they they still didn't get, didn't even get a chance to put some of the electric guitars on. And then whistle was very stage. You know, he wasn't playing his sound, and Keith Moon played parts well. That's why when they did it live, and then that uh, expanded Who It Leads, it's remarkable. And I think again they were much better live than on record because they couldn't capture the the insanity. I mean, Daltrey was brilliant with his twirling the mic. I mean, spinning it like a lasso. And Keith Moon, you have to see him to believe him. That's all I can say. And, and I was lucky to see him a number of times with The Who. You just laugh. Laugh and then get excited and then whistle would make a face like, you're going, what's this going on here? And Townsend was remarkable. Mo- <laughs> and Townsend was just like nobody else. Played great. He wasn't a great lead guitar player, but he was a great chordist lead guitar player.
2: To me, one of the best rhythm guitar players.
1: Absolutely. And he, and he did a lot of punks and he did pre-punk stuff. He did a lot of the eighth notes thing as well. So we both agree that that group had a big influence. And when Enwistle passed away, my son was grieving because we he grew up listening to that. And, uh, you know, for him, that was like a a real hero, kind of in a way, because he appealed to kids. And some of his lyrics like, you know, Silas Stingy, you know, and and Boris the Spider, of course. Mm. He was like that. He was very brilliant, unique guy. So I'm glad we can talk about The Who at this point.
2: I read a biography of The Who written by Dave Marsh called Before I Get Old, and in there He goes and says that when it came Round to uh, for Townsend To do Tommy and he knew he needed A couple of songs about these Unsavory characters cousin Kevin And yes. Uncle Ernie, and he said I can't write this but You're the That's one right. with the, the black sense of Humor the black uh-huh. comedic sense of humor You do it and he knew that That was Entwistle's forte And just yeah perfect songs And once again
1: his voice the deep deep Baritone made it happen so I'm so glad we can talk about them in and the fact that they still have the ability to play and they survived is remarkable of course you know it's a different who but nevertheless it's it's remarkable and they and they enjoy doing it in Daltry too had a lot of issues doing the Who for years i mean i give them a lot of credit and did a lot of charity work as well so um, I'm a big fan. So again, I'm I'm lucky I was able to, I can't even explain, like seeing Jimi Hendrix, I told you when I last talked to you. It's hard to explain exactly what you saw, because it wasn't like every night he hit the mark the same way every time. It's all about interpretation. And I think that era of groups, whether it's Led Zeppelin or Jeff Beck or Jethro Tull, is another example of extreme stuff. There was always jamming, Cream especially. They just jammed, just like jazz. Some nights you just, you couldn't believe that they changed what they did and and it was even better that you remembered it so I think that's one of the, the things for me that was exciting about that time period where they had the luxury to jam it, and everybody did and everybody jammed differently too by the way which I, I loved that affected all of it in the knack as well we all Bruce Gary especially we were able to go off in any given direction and make it interesting where we were allowed to you know I mean the pop format was what it was but that's why Tequila Break on Through you know from the live album for instance
0: you know the day destroyed a night night divides the day Try to run, try to hide. Break on through to the other side. Break on through to the other side. Break on through to the other side, you.
1: If you listen to that, we go off in a lot of places, and Burton's solo was just a remarkable. Again, I always point Burton out because I don't think he gets enough credit for being as multi-talented as he was, let alone, Birch, you know, the ability to play a lot of different styles. And as I mentioned to you, there's a version of us doing all your experience from CBGB's, a live version of it. It's pretty damn good. We also always did not fade away into Mona as well. You know, doing other people's songs, again, could be a real a kind of like a testimony to their greatness and the fact we can reinterpret them our way and make it work and i like hard way by the way
2: on our second album i
1: thought that the, was the really kinks cool.
2: yeah 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 yeah, yeah. kinks and it's in our style too and it's interesting because like most people it seems who cover kink songs are doing like from the classic 60s era and i think the 70s era is often overlooked and that one was a 70s era song wasn't it
1: 70s. And again, you know, a lot of people forget or never even heard author I mean, they spent a lot of time doing that album. And because of Tommy and because of problems they had with management and raising the money, they never got a chance to do it the way they wanted to. Mm. And, and that's a remarkable album, actually. The, the writing and the, the, uh, the melodies, Young and Innocent Days is one of my favorite songs uh, they had written,
2: actually. You know? Shangri-La, I think, is on that
1: Shangri-La's album. Shangri-La is incredible. And Victoria, I love, too. So they, but they did satires in, on uh, culture, English culture. And they were wonderful. And the early kinks Were great too I love the simplicity Of the chords You know the heavy chords That Dave played And again They progressed And you always wanted To hear another kink variation All day and all of the night Or You Really Got Me Which they did And they're wonderful too Not as remembered As fondly
2: as other groups Are though unfortunately One of my favorite Kink songs is one that I, I think it was a big Single at the time But not many people Talk about it now Is Everybody's Gonna Be Happy That's a great song Fantastic pop song
1: That's wonderful Yep. I was gonna say I like it all Their albums have like the kink controversy They always have. Had k's and k's in their titles they made some very cool stuff you know what i mean
2: yeah they sure did and
1: uh they were very cool so anyway uh they influenced us to a degree and you know maybe more so than appears to the, to the naked ear how's that
2: <laughs> it all sounds fine to the naked ear but it don't really happen that way at all or something like that no it doesn't <laughs>
0: be crazy And you got no
2: In my reading up over the last few weeks about various Knack stories, and it comes out that you had gone and recorded a song for Shanghai Surprise, uh, the film that was with George Harrison's Handmade Studios and a song that ended up over the closing credits. But was your version actually put in the film? Well. What was the story? How did you, how did you get involved with George Harrison? What was he like?
1: Well, here's how would happen. First of all, when I lived in England, uh, as I mentioned, I think before, I was going to, I had met uh, Rose Taylor, but also, and Rose was mixed wife. So because I met Rose Taylor, she knew a lot of people and a lot of cool places to go. But my manager also was uh, Jamie Granger, Stuart Granger's son, famous actor. And he knew a lot of people. And his girlfriend ran a modeling agency. So Bobton, what I'm saying is I went to a lot of clubs, let's say, and liked to go on out and dance and all that. There's a club called Tramp. So one night I was there and I was dating a, a, a girl, a very attractive English woman who was best friends with a girl. I worked with Derek Taylor, mm-hmm. who was George Harrison's publicist, his Beatles publicist. So, in the course of the evening, we hung out, we ate together, and everybody would dance. You know, I'd get up and dance. Actually, uh, Stevie Wonder's in Visions with that at the time. So, I actually met George, and we all ended up dancing together. So, I met George at that time period. So, anyway, in 86, I got a phone call from a producer, Bob Rose, and I didn't know what it was. He said, Hey, Prescott Niles, yeah, man, I got, you know, I know you, I know you work. And I was told uh, this might be a great thing for you to be interested in. So, uh, I come down to Sound, Sound City, a great studio, which they did the movie about, obviously. Right, right. And uh, we got a session. He didn't tell me what it was. So I said, OK, I went down there, of course. And when I walked in the door, he goes, listen, man, you know, just be cool. It's George Harrison. And I started laughing. I'm going, George Harrison, really? You know, OK. So the good thing was I met him, but I forgot that I was in the Knack. <laughs> it was, I, I I was like, okay, at least I met him once, right? I was a nobody when I'm you know. So um I walk in there and I meet Jim Keltner who was a drummer. Yeah, wow. And Bruce Gary did know Jim Keltner anyway. And Lauren Struber was guitarist who played From with McCartney. Wiggs, yep, yeah, and good friend to this day and everything. So I, I meet George and I'm going, Hey George, hey, what's up? And I'm going, I think I met him mitch I was dating Kathy. She says, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Hi, how you doing? And he goes, Yeah, listen, uh, I dig the knack record, you know. And immediately I was like, whoa. Well, how could you not have heard it, right? Somebody would have mentioned me to him anyway. I'm going, okay, at least I don't feel like I'm one foot off the ground. I'm 10 feet off the ground, you yeah. know? <laughs> at, least, at least I was a musician. I wasn't auditioning. At least he knows I'm good enough to play bass, okay? So that was a big start. So anyway, I was in the control room with him, which was real luxury. I felt it was better for me because he was like, you know, he's riffing and singing and playing. It's the first time he's been in the studio in years, by the way. So it was kind of like, he was very private and I knew it was a special session you know I was getting married at some point after that so we kind of talked a little bit about my fear and loathing of possibly getting married which was the greatest thing I ever did because of my children today which is the funniest things you meet in life but anyway so when we started cutting the song I had a chord chart in front of me and George Harrison's music has very odd chord changes it's diminished augmented you know things like that flat nines so it wasn't just your normal chord chart of playing roots you know and then I'm playing with the great Jim Keltner and Jim Keltner played so deep in his pocket that in Bruce Gary Jim was his favorite drummer I knew I couldn't rush you know and I couldn't be impulsive so here I am with thinking to myself oh god please don't let them not stop the take we're doing because of me that's all I could think of I didn't want Jim Kelvner to go hey Prescott you're rushing yeah. okay <laughs> I didn't want George to go well I didn't like that run you did That's that was me nervous but confident You can, you know I'm reading the notes I'm kind of inventing as we went anyway we did a couple of takes. Nobody stopped because of me. How's that for achievement? That's my big achievement, right? Indeed. It wasn't me, even though I did the knack. didn't matter. And George dug it and everybody dug it. And I was so happy. So I, I do have a tape of that. Now, that was song was used as a trailer for the movie. So okay. the version I did was a trailer for the movie Now George went back to England I was expecting to go to England to record a couple of more songs Bob Rose was the producer Unfortunately, George And fortunately, George uh, Jeff Lynn was living in his neighborhood Or at least maybe he was buying a house there So once they hung out together That was the end for me But it was the greatest album that George ever made, wasn't it?
2: It was Clad Nine, wasn't it?
1: Yep So I didn't get a chance to play with him I didn't get a chance to call off my marriage Because I was scared going to England they, I can't get married, honey, because I'm going to England with to George, George Harris. That was my out. <laughs> because I was nervous. You know You know what I'm saying? I mean, I I don't know. And I was nervous and I thought maybe that was going to be my out. And it wasn't. So I'm glad I didn't say that. But I mean, to go to England and record with George Harrison, are you kidding? Mm -hmm. So anyway, it turned out to be what it was. And I'm grateful that, in retrospect, that I had a chance to to be with George, considering all the bad things that happened after with cancer and the the home invasion. I mean, it's terrible what happened to him. But he was in a good mood and he he was wonderful to work. And it's a cherished memory Again, because I did meet him, which at least broke and at least he knew, you know, I mean, he knows a lot of albums, but I'm glad he knew what I did because, and again, that's a tribute to what they did. Being in the Knack and at least knowing the Beatles is another reason why we're all here together that day. So that's my story. And by the way, Doug was insanely jealous.
2: Oh, I bet he was. <laughs> So I want to return to The Knack because... Knackland. Let's return to Knackland. And I picked out three songs that I absolutely adore and just wanted to get your thoughts on what you may remember about the recording of them, anything about arrangements. And these are songs that most people, except for us diehard Knack fans, may not even know about. And these three songs are in a way very un like or at least not what you'd expect from if you only know the first couple of albums, so uh, okay. One of these songs is one you mentioned yesterday. I can't remember if it was after the conversation or at the end of the conversation, but it was Little Cal's big mistake. It's a great groove laden song. And to my ears, it sounds like the sort of thing that would have been a great zombie song. I can just almost hear Colin Blundstone singing that. And because it's very keyboard heavy, it almost sounds like the sort of thing that Rod Argent would have played. You got it.
1: Very much so. And that had a lot to do with Burden of Air. Burden of those chord progressions like Steely Dan and like the people you mentioned, that was Burden's jazz influence. And if you listen to the solo we played, it had a very bebop sound to it, you know? And live was even better. Because we and Bruce again, the drumming is just remarkable. All the drum fills that lead from part to part was fantastic. So and, and the lyric is a
2: very very peculiar lyric as well. If you really have to listen to it, you know what I mean. Well, I was going to ask: Were Burton and or Doug big fans of film noir? Because it sounds like something. Yeah, like, they were a pulpy detective novel or or an old film noir.
1: Yeah, even the first line is about a, something affair, right? And and what's remarkable is that song "Sweet Dreams" was the first perfect segue from that one you know ends with the sirens and everything Mm -hmm. and then we go into this of esque I did my Rickenbacker Paul McCartney invitation on that one (laughs) but it's a great line but the drum anyway that's a very cool song too and it it fit in the transition of it actually it was very cinematic but that was a very cool song by the way Little Cows and and again when we did it live the soloing at the end was pretty amazing as well.
2: So did you guys go into recording round trip with the idea of wanting to do something that sounded completely different to what you had on Get the and But the Little Girl understand because that album, I mean, it's got some stuff that sounds like it could have fit on the first two, but there's a lot of stuff that sort of says, well, you know, we do other things as well. And and that's why I love that album so much.
1: Well, the great thing is, it wasn't that anything was done deliberately. I just think after we broke up, you know, after the uh, second album, for reasons I'll get into later, which is always a good thing to go backwards, Doug was, I think, a bit out of his mind because he basically, when Bruce quit, he called me one day, I might have recorded it, but I can't find it, which says, I don't need Bruce Garrett, i get two drummers, you know, and We're going to go in and make an album. I don't care what we got to do. Well, that wasn't working. But I mentioned when John Lennon passed away, I think it was such a, a sobering moment are one of our great, not heroes just because, he but of a great man hero who we grew up with and again, becoming such a iconic figure in progressive peace movement, you know, being just defining himself and didn't care what anybody thought. And I love the Plastic Ono Band, the first album. I mean, you're coming out of the Beatles and he did the strip down. He was doing, you know, Arthur Janoff, he was doing that Primal Therapy, of course. Yes, yes. But being able to put it on a record and still have it be a cool record and write great songs and it was sincere. That's remarkable. And so, when again, when he passed, and it was a favorite, I got a picture on my wall of John. It's actually signed by him, not for one person, but it it meant a lot to us, but more so to Doug. So I called him after and I said, Look, you know, I know we got our problems, but you know, we got it. We got at least. And we already was going in different directions. We uh, were putting a new group together. We were actually going to call it's my plan words. We were going to, if the album ever came out, it'd be called Dugout, baseball dugouts, you know?
2: Yeah, 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 yeah.
1: And while we split from Doug, with our manager Scott, we realized that Scott screwed us up with Capital and really messed it up. So we fired him, and then Doug came back. So we we're gonna call the album Scott 3.
0: Oh, <laughs> you
1: like that huh yeah oh playing words well anyway you had to hear that because i thought it was great so anyway we decided we're going to do an album we d- try to figure out who to produce well jack douglas came up of course because he was a brilliant producer anyway did Cheap trick of course double uh, fantasy Aerosmith, and and general fantasy i think in a way it was the closest we can get to john and we didn't know if jack douglas would agree to do it to our chagrin you know what that word means of course delight he yeah <laughs> he said we thought we were a great band and said he would work with us he came to los angeles and we went to record plant you know and we just right away i mean it was just like we had these songs kind of worked out but he knew how to record us and the the opening song radiating love is definitely one of the most positive that song should be a hit today Because it's, it's such a happy, outgoing song. I think it's a great lyric, Doug and Burton wrote together. And the, the groove on it and the middle section, by the way, it's Flo and Eddie doing some of the harmonies. Oh, wow. Didn't know that. They were in the studio with us, and they also sang in a couple of other tracks as well with us. But it's such a beautiful, uh, in the B section, when they're doing da 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 da, da you know? That's mm-hmm. Flo and Eddie. That's a wonderful song. So again, not only did Jack get the sounds, we never could have gotten any, because Mike wasn't Jack Douglas. You know what I mean? And the, the, the bass and the drums were incredible. And of course, the vocals. And then you got Soul Kissing, which is one of my favorite songs, because it's like kind of like uh, Strange Brew in, the, in a way. It's got this groove, but it's Soul Kissing. How cool is it? Great. And then of Africa, as you know, you might have... Well, you wanted to bring up some songs, so go ahead.
2: Yeah, no, no, no. That, I mean, I was going to go to a couple of songs off a couple of other albums, but happy to hear your memories of Round Trip. Africa, what a... Gr- and it's another fantastic groove-laden song that if you would have said to someone, hey listen to this song from the knack if they only knew the first two albums they would they would never have guessed it i I was so happy to hear that wow this is something so different
1: and I are huge Earth, Wind & Fire fans. You know, we saw right after we got back from Japan, second, you know, we just like, wow. So Burton, you know, and you could tell I'm doing a lot of funk in that song. I'm actually popping on a Knack album, okay? But Burton wrote down on keyboard to agree, and, and Doug, they came up with the idea to do like a tone poem. It's not like a melody, melodic song, but just parts of it, but it's more like a tone poem, really. Different approach, like Morrison might do. And Bruce's drumming, if you really, the tones, Jack Douglas Scott, I played that for drummers I've worked with and didn't say who it was. They thought it might have been Billy Cobham or some other cats from you know Chick Corea. They couldn't believe it was an act. And live, we even did it better. And the solo burden played with the harmonies in the end was fantastic. And, you know, I give myself credit for being funky. And nobody knew I could be, even though I was. And uh, Doug did a great job in that. So I love playing that song for people. They have no idea. And then, of course, the next song was She Likes the Beat, mm. which is, to me, a very cool
2: lyric, a very cool groove. Very Elvis Costello-ish in a way.
1: Yeah, it is. But it's got a big groove to it, you know? And then, of course, Just Wait and See, which we when we toured our first tour of Japan, that song was included. So that could have come out in the second album, actually. But it came out in the third album. I think it's a great pop song. And Burdens, again, plays a 12-string like Jim McGuinn. You know,
2: Roger McGuinn, so sorry. Who is really Jim, as you know, right? I did know it wasn't Roger. I didn't remember what the actual name But, but yes, I did know it wasn't Roger.
1: And the next song is a psychedelic song that sounds like uh, The Dirge with John Bonham on drums.
2: How did, I don't know whose idea, maybe I'm presuming it was Doug's, to have that background Hebrew vocal in, in the middle of We Are we. Exactly.
1: And backwards vocals too.
2: Yeah, yeah, and yeah. It was
1: just a psychedelia. I don't know if it was the French cigarettes or the Indian <laughs> food. <laughs> or the cognac or the occasional or too. Oh, I'm right. not sure exactly the combination, but it was all those things. And then the second side opens, which should have been the single, The Boys Go Crazy, which is a perfect answer to Good Girls Don't. And I, I think it's got a great hook, by the way, in the drumming. It, it, again it's fantastic and then you got the other two we mentioned before and i love um it segue after sweet dreams of going to another lousy day in paradise which is i think not only a biographical song of what we were going through but it's got Flo and eddie or in that bill hudson also sang in that background with his brother and i think the bridge is fantastic so that's a great song then can't pay the devil and boy do we ever a country ballad A nice, wonderful song, but who's into country? And then we ended with Art War, which was, of course, fantastic. I love country, but the knack,
2: is not country. Well, of course, mind you, Doug doing his tribute later on to Hank Williams. So that was how he was able to get his uh, oh, that was country great. leanings out. Well, We
1: I don't know if you ever saw this, by the way. Speaking of, we did this thing for this guy, Art Fine, and we played at the House of Blues. We did hit Elvis night and we did three Elvis songs with Bruce coming back to us after breaking up. And you got to hear We killed it. And one of our favorite songs is "Viva Las Vegas. And Bruce is playing Keith Moon on drums. You have to, anyway, this is aggression, but you have to hear that. I'm fine with that. So that's my summation of Round Trip. And even the critics liked it They didn't have the hit single But I think we got a lot of respect I think it's one of the best produced and recorded albums And and Jack speaks fondly of it I've, I've run into him and talked to him He actually said we're one of the best bands he's worked with Because we were able to deliver without doing 100 takes So anyway, that's and So keep going What are the
2: songs you mentioned? The next song I want to get your recollections of And once again, very atypical For what most people would have thought of as a next song Is from Zoom And it's oh, All in the All in All longest time, you know, you had to put up with the the bullshit of being called the new Beatles. Um, Yeah, But this song to me actually is one song that really does sound very, very Beatlesque. It's something that sounds like it could have fitted on I don't know, maybe Rubber Soul or Revolver that arpeggiated guitar feel and that guitar solo in that, it sounds more like a post Beatles George Harrison with that little slide feel that Burton does and we already spoke a little bit yesterday about what great slide player yes uh, yes Burton, Burton was but what are your recollections of the recording of that song or the arrangement of that song
1: that was pretty much Doug's vision I think he co-wrote it with Oliver Lever by the way mm-hmm. uh, we heard it and everything and there wasn't much to do it was a psycho- psychedelic tribute I kind of liked it. it it had a cool thing but if you want to talk about Be The Last Everything I Do Makes Me Sad That Ballad
0: everything I do.
1: the beatles you know the one that's on the first side uh anything on do me yeah yeah it sounds yeah, yeah, like you know true. it sounds like that song we by the way jack white played drums jack picked with big springfield and a, n- a number of people but, and he was a friend he's doing ringo that song is so beatles if you hear the solo so if you want to talk about the beatles that's the one it's wonderful by the way it's a, it's a great song by the way and that's atypical as well but i, I
2: but for a psychedelic song that song is very cool zoom in general uh, i mean it's still sounded like, you know very poppy and maybe in the vein, maybe a a more restraint. I don't know. I don't like the word restraint, but something that in a similar way to the first couple of albums, a really great pop rock album. But as I mentioned to you yesterday, it seemed like Burton's harmonies came to the fore very much on that album
1: very much and I think that was a really honest the three of us at that point Bruce we came back we did a couple of shows in LA we had a rough idea of writing we we ended up getting a different manager Danny Sugarman and Danny had worked with The Doors
2: right he wrote uh, No One Here Gets Out Alive that book about yeah yeah.
1: and Danny we came upon he knew Bruce pretty well because Bruce actually taught for The Doors movie Bruce taught the guy how to play drums who played oh, wow. the, you know taught him how to make it look right and everything but Danny Doug had done a solo album and Doug thought that maybe he put that out and we do some of our our no he said no you guys gotta write a new album now. that ain't happening so we all got together and we were earnest Bruce unfortunately checked out he had business issues and him and Doug always had this thing you know and it's sad he it really is very sad because they really did love each other it's very difficult to explain the ins and outs Bruce did have some rheumato arthritis and issues before he got cancer so to speak But but that album we decided talking about drummers and Doug had met Terry Bozio and hung out with him and we all talked and Terry was really interested thought we were a great band and so here we go we wrote the songs we did demos of ourselves at home I brought harder on you which I mentioned which I hoped would have been in that thing you do but it ended up becoming on that album which I'm very grateful for and we rehearsed with Terry we cut a lot of tracks but that album had so many elements that were honest and there's another song I crafted called Tomorrow it's kind of a rockabilly riff I wrote that I, I changed to make it happen that solo section the harmonies a three part Broadway musical harmonies thank you Burton of Air
2: because now that's his thing, isn't it? It's musical theatre
1: he was very gifted and when he started to do that and wrote a couple of plays he almost had some success and unfortunately his writing partner did he had a problem and he passed away right you know but it's very difficult to get a theatrical production not only done in finance but to get it on you know at a major venue so to speak but Burton did have a gift and Doug uh, you know those two would get together and sing all the Broadway shows which is remarkable. Doug's an actor by the way
2: did you notice? He liked an audience he
1: sure did but he had craft and he filled with it so to speak you know that particular combination was remarkable so that it appeared actually in that song we did and Bird also played very interesting piano in that style but apart from that song tomorrow I like Mr. Magazine a lot which had excellent harmonies so apropos today these writers these magazine you know everybody's got a story right it's a brilliant care thing about all this crap that people write about and it's a br- excellent lyric they wrote together i really like it and again pop is dead is a great i think a great opening song it's one of the better openers i think uh since back in the old days you know and terry's drumming is remarkable Ooh, hey pop is dead
0: bring your shovel
2: Exactly. <laughs> energetic as something like Let Me Out Off the first album
1: Absolutely And those fills are insane But And again So what, what? That thing about that song Is I've had people Come up to me After a live show And go Hey Pop is dead So whose father Passed away <laughs> I go No No <laughs> <laughs> I oh said my God. It's, it's not literal A pop music Okay And it's actually a, br- a brilliant lyric And so There's a lot of songs And Terry and Julie I don't know if you know That song Yes Again yes. It's a really cool riff And a great drum fill And personally, I liked a a number of songs in that album I thought it was a great effort And it did get reviews Rhino did not know how to promote an album And also, Danny Sugarman was influential with us And getting us to Rhino And everybody was excited So Danny, unfortunately, passed away uh, he had cancer, but then he was on methadone for a while. And before the album came out, he passed away, unfortunately. So he couldn't really push the record label. And Rhino did not enable. We toured with Terry and we played half a tour. And I got a great story for you, by the way. And then, unfortunately, the Rhinos didn't get it in the store. So the album did liked and everything, but it didn't get a chance to really happen. I got to tell you about a Twilight Zone moment, if, I, if, if you allow me, okay? Please. We played in Detroit. And whenever we did, sometimes Doug's brother would introduce us. And I don't know if you know anything about Doug's brother. He was a lawyer.
2: I have heard about that, yes.
1: And represented some dubious characters in lawsuits. Okay, so he, this one particular time, we're promoting that we're doing that tour, and and one of our, our NAG fans who became who I knew as a friend through the years. Whenever we played Detroit, he went to the shows. Okay, so before we play, he comes up to the dressing room, and he's bringing this old guy with him, and we think it's probably his uncle or grandfather, you know. And I'm just I'm talking to Burton. I always had a thing with Burton. Whenever something go wrong i we call it kk which is not karma (laughs) which means anything that could go wrong will that was like we made up an axiomatic phrase there's certain turning points in our career when there was a kk moment which we knew was dubious and horrible right so as doug's as he's being introduced to people he's shaking doug's hand and terry's and i hear jack kaborkian now the ethics of dr death euthanizing people was debatable okay but why is he in the next dressing room?
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I
1: looked at Bird and I said, we're, we're done, man. This is, this is no good mojo, man. So anyway, we played the show. And by the way, my friend who was in the audience said Kevorkian was basically like this. He was being tortured that night. He, they left halfway through, okay? Two days later, Doug got a terrible, terrible sore throat. Never had it so bad. They get steroids. He had to sing a, a whole key below pitch. And we had bad dates. It was kind of a bad time to play. Terry Bozio got bronchitis two days after that. And Terry, when we got back to L.A., was supposed to do a tour himself, you know, drum clinics. Well, he got bronchitis and basically said, I'm going home, guys. So the tour was over in a week. Thank you, Jack Kevorkian.
2: Kevorkian. Oh, neck Karma, as you say.
1: I'm telling you. Now, what are the odds <laughs> of Jack Kevorkian being in a knack's dressing room? A million to one? So anyway, I thought you'd like that story.
2: I was half expecting you to say that out on a um, uh, good behavior release for a night was Charles Manson or something like that. But
1: Well, Charles was locked up. But if, but if, Jack, if Doug's brother could have got him there, he would have. Okay? <laughs> but Jack's 75, 80 years old, man. What's he coming to a Naxx show? It's bizar- It's bizarre. Okay, anyway... So so anyway, the tour ended, and Terry was phenomenal. I'm dying to get anybody that ever recorded it live or filmed it. I never found anybody, and I pay big money to find anybody that had that because I wanted to see what the experience was like. Terry was great, by the way, a real team player as much as he could, and uh, I enjoyed it. So anyway, that's that story.
2: I think I've heard you say once that you sort of thought at first Terry Bozio, you know, um, Zappa's drummer, and then he said, but he really liked playing straightforward.
1: Did oh. and and some people said, nah, he can't play rock. If you look, some of the songs he just plays a Ringo Pocket just straight no fills and then some songs he got a weird snare sound but anyway it was a joy doing it I thought the album could have been recorded better but it's not the point I think the material was very strong and I think we were all disappointed that you know we'd never got a chance to uh succeed in that level and by the way serious fun we overlooked but I think it had some great moments in that album as well which I felt it, looking back and playing it to people who never heard it I think it got a lot of credit for excellent production some really good songwriting and playing as well
2: I do want to ask you about one more song This is to turn to the album that you said to me yesterday That you were the least fond of That was normal as the next guy But the song Man on the Beach
0: White seals on
2: is so much Burton and Doug's tribute to the Beach Boys. that beautiful. And it's not, it's not just the Beach Boys, but it's a Beach Boys of that early 70s surfs up sunflower period. It really sounds like it's almost like an answer to the song surfs up.
1: It was very cool recording it. And it was pretty remarkable to tell you the truth. If my memory serves me well, we recorded that song during the Don was time. Oh really? I don't remember doing it because the studio we were in was a real studio not this other studio because it was very well produced as well and I think the harmonies especially and the melodies Doug and Bird were quite extraordinary that, that's a unique song by the way thanks for bringing that up uh,
2: it's gorgeous I mean, you
1: know it is. I, and Burton, again, there's another song that never, it was on the uh, two songs that came out on the Serious Fun Expanded. One was a blues song, Down with the Blonde, which is a great blues song. And Burton, again, plays a great solo. And another song about Mother Nature or something. It's a great song about saving the earth, by the way, Burton wrote. But anyway, that's for the fans and the aficionados out there. Who I hope are listening to this show. But anyway, Serious Fun and had a great, that was my favorite lyric of a song, Serious Fun. It's about reading and, 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 and learning. It's a great, great song. But um, again, you know, it, it seems like we had a lot of starts and stops in our career, and we never really addressed a second album. But that's your
2: call. Another album that I really, really adored and um, felt. Well, hang on. Why isn't this like number one for the next twenty weeks? Like, get the knack was just you know another set of really terrific songs. And I, I guess if I wanted to pick any one song on that album, it's uh, the feeling I get.
0: don't want to feel
2: it with me. because you got christmas bells and
0: castanets castanets
1: you know right sleigh bells yes yeah, well, it's, it, it's doug ripping off ryan wilson who was ripping off phil specter
2: yeah uh yeah it is a specterish type of song Yeah,
1: i like the song see Mike Chapman on the second album unfortunately was having some marital discord and Mike was really extraordinarily popular you know after our second Blondie and everybody else so for some reason there was some stuff going on there was no reason why we did a second album Capitol didn't want it the band just came off a U.S. tour. We hadn't even released the third single from the album yet, which should have been frustrated or selfish, edited possibly, right? There was another single to be had, I believe, you know? And we did the U.S. tour, you know, it wasn't a good time to come back off the U.S. tour. There was something that were going on in my life, maybe I'll alert, allude to possibly with my brother, my younger brother. Gordon he told tell me the other day, he says, Doug just said, I got the songs written, let's we'll just do a new album. And I knew damn well that if we're gonna do a new album, they're going to compare it to Sharona. They had to. When you have a big, big single, you can't take for granted that anything you do will be compared to that, or rather, take for granted. I knew it. Capital, for some reason, they weren't really excited about the album cover, and Sharona's on that cover. It was a strange picture that was edited in with the mic stand. The insert was a good album picture of us in the limo going, Hey, girls, that was the truth. That the other wasn't. So basically, there was no real need. We, we were nominated for the Grammys, two Grammy Awards. For best new artist and best song of the year. We also hadn't done our TV appearances yet. Dick Clark wanted to do a short movie on us, by the way, did a script. We didn't do, Amer- so we didn't even do the things we needed to do to get to the next level. America wanted to know us. We're American bands. We weren't the one picture that all of anybody ever saw was Doug sneering that picture, which was a, a great picture for what it was. But the thing was, we were a band that should have been known because we were, we were funny. You know, we were or even Marx Brothers, like when we did interviews, we were very funny, intelligent. And for that reason, I think nobody knew us. We were kind of like the outcasts because of our success. We weren't hanging with other bands or had like everybody had like a club, right, Uh, of record people or a gang, so to speak. And we were kind of still flying independently of everybody.
2: I've heard stories and I wanted to clear the record. Was that a management edict that you didn't get to hang out with other bands or do as much press to show your marks by the side?
1: I think the paralysis was when you have so much success, there's things you need to do. Now, you normally people kiss ass in the music business to get to that point. Especially when you get there, you've got to do more hand tricks. You've got to do more. Thank you very much. You just can't be unavailable for everything, if you know what I mean. I think there was resentment because in most people's minds, if we were prefabricated to be the Beatles, that's one resentment, which was not true. The fact that we had success so quickly out of the box couldn't be, well, how could that happen? And we were real players, too. Thirdly, we snubbed so many things. You know, like I said, whether it's interviews, TV shows, we, we needed to be known. And also we got resentment because we did the album so cheap that, you know, I told you, I may have mentioned yesterday, record labels were telling their artists to go, hey, the Knack did it for $17,000. Why the hell do you need a $50,000 budget? So then we had some of the musicians, even though they liked us, go, screw the Knack. Now, we're not the Knack. We're not going to do it to 17,000. So that didn't help. So anyway, we start the second album. Mike's really not there. And Doug, I think, took advantage of that. in some of the production and I think even the recorded sounds, I think just having the songs enough to do the album is one thing. But man, what are you going to compare it to? And by the way, the Knax album was out in June and we're putting out a new album in February and we're not even in America to promote it we're in Japan doing a, a, a you know big tour so in other words, Matt Karma, why didn't we do the things you're supposed to? You know, you see, I'm not being critical. I, I knew at the time it was like, why aren't we staying in America and promoting the album? We did make a video of Baby Talks 2. We did do a video of I Want ya, but they're never and frustrated. They were never shown yet. So anyway, that's kind of answers the question mm. of the critics were ready to shoot us. We gave them the ammo because once that album came out, they compared Baby Talks 2 to the Sharona. And the only thing it has in common is the key of G. Because the riff is different. The, there's no chorus, chorus. The drums are not spectacular. They're And the bridge is like Led Zeppelin to me. So, in other words, I didn't like the lyric and I voiced my opinion. I don't know why Capitol would. I mean, it's a clever lyric, but it's damn filthy. And I'm not approved by any
0: means, by the way. <laughs>
1: Steven Tyler sang that lyric, nobody would wince. they go, great, Steven, right? Robert Plant or anybody that's into that scene because they're sensual singers. They're lead singers that have sexual charisma. Doug's part of the band, and he's not going to sell that lyric because people don't believe it. He's not that image. And I thought the dirtiness of the lyric was a problem. And I never liked it. And even when we played it, I was embarrassed. And in in England, didn't even play it.
2: Well, it's a song of bondage, isn't it? That's a song of bondage.
1: No, it's not bondage primarily. My baby likes a real neat beating. My baby likes it nasty. I mean, there's a lot of cute, goofy things in there, but you know it's not a great hook my baby likes me, me no. now they called this misogynist which was really stupid from some of the lyrics on the first album which is ridiculous compared to the groups I mentioned yep. I mean a whole lot of love what's that about right so Sque- Doug double down
2: squeezing your lemon and let th- the juice run down your leg
1: so Doug double down on that and that's why he wrote that Doug Burden even mentioned that to me so whatever we were criticized for, Doug double down on it <laughs> so in retrospect i wish the second album was the, was the first the third album was the second album but unfortunately Mike kind of checked out on it mm. and I thought that if Capitol really thought about it, they wouldn't have put it out. I'm not saying it wasn't a great album, but I'm saying if we had the right single to lead it, we would have been much better off. And, and I think that really hurt us. And that's why we broke up. And I think the critics basically had a reason to dethrone us. And it's not a sob story, it's just a reality story, you know? Yeah, sure. And and we we didn't have enough friends in the business. And Scott, our manager, did alienate people because he even called this company Upstart, which even by itself is kind of like weird. But he started acting like a manager, but not a manager that knew the business. And, you know, he said, you guys got to come in if you want to hook the knack. We got to, you know, we'll interview you. And he said, screw you. So anyway, that's why we got the blowback, by the way. I'm trying to give sense to it we kind of gave it away because of inexperience and because we the things we should do. We should, if we went to the Grammys and played my Sharona, and not only would we have won, sold more records, I think we would have won America. That's my opinion. And unfortunately, it took a while longer to get to, you know, to there. So um, what does that have to do with our album coming out on 20, th-
2: 2001? I'm glad you brought that up because that was my next question. So very recently, there had been this newly released you album of The Knack live at the House of Blues in Los Angeles recorded, as I'm sure you've spoken a fair bit about, two weeks after 9-11. And I've heard the stories where you said, well, there was some decision. Do we do this? Do we not do this? But your audience wanted to have a good time. They wanted to have a reason to be happy. And you, were there, you were there to give it to them. How much did that gig mean to you guys? I mean, why was this particular gig, aside from its date, why was that particular gig chosen to be the one that you released as a live album. Uh, Was it because it was a Los, Los Angeles homecoming? The first thing is, it was
1: miraculous that Tony found. See, I knew nothing about, I didn't know anybody recorded that night, frankly. For Tony to call me, you know, Tony Valenziano, who, for Smile Records, he released us, he's a friend, and... You know, I like him. And he called me one day and said, hey, man, I found this thing. What'd you find? He found them off the board. I, I wish it had been an audience and the mixing board, you know what I mean, for more depth and dimension. And he called me and said, this thing is really cool, man. It's a great show. It's got magic. We came back with a new drummer. And right after that show, we did that thing called uh, Live at Funhouse, which they filmed. I don't know if you've
2: seen that. So I've seen a couple of clips from that. Yeah.
1: So that was the lineup with Jones, the new guy on drums and the cool guy kind of looked like Elvis a little bit. You know, he had a great guy, a lot of energy. Technically, he wasn't Bruce Gary, but he's what we needed at that time period. He was really good. And, you know, again, we had written new songs, as you know, we did Harder on You. We did some songs off of Normal is the Next Guy, Seven Days in Heaven. And we did a few from each album, which I thought was cool. To hear it and go, man, my God, you know, where'd you get this, Tony? And he told me about it. And then he got people interested in Canada, Liberation, and other people were involved. And, and he said, hey, we're going to put it out. I'm going, what? Really? Really? It was a shock at first because I didn't know it existed. And neither did Burton. I got a test copy of it before they even though they were going to put it out of the water, apparently. So I, I technically I had issues, but I really thought it was exciting. And now there was somebody I know who was in the audience that night. He's a friend. He, he ended up having groups because of the Knack. He was a good friend. And he was there that night. So he told me it was sold out and people were screaming. You know, I didn't even know that. And he said it was a great night. He saw a lot of Knack shows prior to that. And it, one of his favorite albums is Round Trip but he thought it was a great show and he was grateful to see it. So I know it was better than I remember it. Uh, The audience was great. It was the first gig we played in years together. So, you know, it was exciting. Now, if we were in New York during 9-11, it would have been a different vibe because you can smell it. You could see it. In L.A., you, you were pretty removed from it, even though it scared you. It wasn't like in your backyard. People were in shock, but it wasn't anything. Now, because of the COVID thing, I compare that to 9-11. And what that difference was, the guy next to you can pitch you in the hospital, which never happened in history of I, my growing up ever. So in other words, the, the 9-11 thing was a grieving and a sadness. It wasn't a physical threat. And to me, comparing it, it, was a, it wasn't was nearly as terrible nor as scary as playing in front of Koldenar. Does that make sense?
2: How much involvement did you and Burton have with post-production on the album? Was there much post-production?
1: None. We, unfortunately, they didn't consult us on that. And I wish we could have brought out better frequencies or brought out more of the balance, the vocals, and you know, because it was, again, off the boards. But maybe because there it, it was an energy. Sometimes, even if there's technical problems, if there's an energy and there's a movement, it's better not to get in the way of it. And it was getting a lot of feedback already. New Knack album coming, wow. And I'm just going to listen. If the opportunity is there, who am I to stop? It? And when I heard it, you know, we heard it on a higher fidelity. It's good enough for me, and the energy was great. And I think we really, we did a great job of uh, selling that night. Now, the catch to that was the night of the listening party, when the album was going to come out, uh, we rented a restaurant. We were all excited. And then it was another KK moment, I'm sad to say, because the Gulf War started. (laughs) We're watching the TVs, and this is celebrating the new album. Hey, we're, who 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 are we bombing right now? So it was a little bit of a downer, but we did tour after that, and it was a springboard for us too. So isn't that weird? The Gulf War just happens to start, <laughs> and uh, but we are part of history, weren't we? But I like the album. I like the material that was selected. I really like the fact that "Hiring You" was a digital single. I never expected it, and it was it was a nice surprise for me. Uh, you know, you know, get a little something, right? And I think it's a really cool pop song, anyway. And it's got a good lyric that I was living through. It's hard for me. It's going to be hard. But I know it's going to be harder than you. It's a sarcasm, you know? And uh, I was going through some problems in my marriage. So in a way, it was apropos at the time. My version with Bill Hudson, though, was a little more romantic, actually. And Bill was a great singer, by the way. I, I enjoyed working with Bill Hudson. Great, great singer, you know? from the Hudson Brothers. That was really special. And and from the feedback I'm getting, a lot of people really like the album. And In the interviews I'm doing, a lot of people are really they have no idea about the circumstance or how it was recorded. They just said, it sounds great. The technical thing, a lot of people, you know, we're musicians, right? I can hear a pin drop and go, hey, I don't like that thing. But I think the audience that hears it, they like the energy and they like the songs and they don't care. So, right? I mean, that's how it is. So I, I'm glad. I'm really happy it, it, it out and because Randy got in touch with you and I get a chance to talk about the knack from behind the curtain and, you know, who I am maybe in the history of my life, so to speak. And uh, Woodstock was a big part of that too, by the way.
2: I'm so happy that we've had the chance to do this. Uh, look, I do have another couple of quick questions for you. And this one is, I don't know, this might seem a little bit unusual, but I've been reading a book recently called Go All The Way which is sort of like a compendium, a lot of different authors writing about their take on what's been labelled post-haste, I guess, about power pop. And and this book, there's a lot of reference done to the knack, you know, amongst mention of, you know, bands like the, the early proto-power poppers like Raspberries and Big Star and the like. So yes, looking back, do you sort of think, yeah, we're happy to be associated with the power pop movement? Do you think it's a fair assessment? Do you care for the label?
1: think when people were at loss to describe something rather than just to genre, so to speak, they invent things, right? You get alternate rock. Today's world, you got 50 different definitions of rock, as you know. I like being called, I mean, who would call power pop, right? I mean, a lot of groups were, and what is pop anyway? Popular. Uh, heavy metals, obviously, death metal, obviously, you know, grunge, you know, everybody came up with things. But I liked it. I liked the fact because we were a powerful band. The raspberries were great. Didn't have a drummer like Bruce Gary. The police were out at the same time. Time we were we opened for them a couple of shows early on I mean they had a different kind of pop and they were powerful too weren't they and of course the raspberries had a beautiful different type of pop attitude Elvis Costello had a different approach to it and I think the that uh, was more of a who more live kind of ripping band than, than those bands and everybody I think contributed to that sound you know and I'm glad to be part of the collection of pop music I mean I think we we're really great musicians and maybe I have a bit of pride about it but that's not what it's about. It's what the audience hears anyway. But I like that.
2: I just love the fact that you're able to look back on this whole career there. And biggest thing I've, I've learned from our discussion uh, over these couple of hours has been just how proud you are of the band's legacy and what you achieve, certainly artistically. Thank you. Success is a funny thing because I've been playing with missing persons,
1: for instance. And for instance, I'm doing this big show, as you know, Cruel World, where Blondie's playing, Devo's playing, Psychedelic Furs are playing, English Feeder playing, Morrissey's headlining, all these bands that have been part of my my life. And I think it's an honor to be playing with them, for instance, right? Now, some of these other shows I've been doing, Missing Persons used to, without Terry and Warren Dale later on, would be on the bill with us. And we were playing with, again, with Blondie and Berlin. And the fact that meeting these people again, and them remembering us, like I remember them, is really cool. That we had a community. We had a, not an era, but a, maybe more than an era. We had decades of being somewhat relevant. And Sharona, again, is one of those songs that if the nurses at the nursing home, the Philippine nurses think it's like an anthem in their country, it's like, holy cow, we, you know, who knew, right? And people come up to me and Sharona was born on a certain day, and they named their child Sharona. There's a lot of family, a lot of humanity involved in because of that song in particular. And there's a lot of fans that I didn't know are still fans. And again, playing on the same bill with groups that may be open for us, it kind of made me feel again nostalgic for us and even for them. Blondie's going through a lot of changes and you know she's not what she was but that's okay she's still here if you know what I'm saying and it's really cool Billy Idol's not what we played with him a little while ago at a big forum show he's not but he's still Billy Idol and he's cool and what Billy Idol's cool so I think I have a new appreciation and then you have this new world of music which is disposable streaming disposable one week in the charts or whatever and one week you're known and next week three days later some idiot. TikTok is known, you know? I don't know. It's a strange world, but I still think there's room for all of it. And, and, I'm, and I love playing and I love playing missing person songs. I think they're relevant and they play well in today's world, by the way. The lyrics are really cool and, and I like playing the music. So I think some things are more dated than others. And by the way, one thing we did mention was the Knack has a distinction of being disco killers. I don't know if you knew that. <laughs> in the documentary on disco, the guy talks about when the Knack came along, that signaled the end of disco (laughs) because we we knocked Donna Summer and Anita Ring My Bell all off the charts.
2: Oh, dear.
1: How's that? So we we brought back pop, okay? But I told an interview recently the reason that song succeeded because it had a dance beat. Think about it. Like you said, bass and drums. But that drum beat, how do you not move to it? so in a way that was a beautiful song to come out with because it was a great transition and i think that's another reason why the song was so popular and then the mystery of sharona being sharona still so people wonder what the hell is sharona
2: i gotta ask are you still in contact with sharona
1: yeah yeah she emails me sometimes she's a still selling real estate she's a mom she has a few kids she beat cancer a number of years ago she was oh, wow. dealing with it she succeeded in beating it and i get some newsletters i'm gonna call her again very soon and just say hey how you doing so she's She's done very well. And of course, everybody knows the name. It's a very common name in Israel, Sharona, by the way. But because of the name, everybody knows her. So she does, sold a lot of real estate. So she's still living the dream. How's that? Isn't that wild? It is. So Doug immortalized her and God bless Doug. Who knew? Right. It's, it's a fun, interesting story. I think, yes, I wish we would have done better things. I wish the timing was right. The management was better. I wish a lot of things. However, the fact that we're talking now
2: means it was still relevant somehow. And that's a miracle. The thing I've tried to get across in this discussion is that you guys released six albums, even if you'd only released get the neck and said, right, that's it. We're calling it a day. You still get a part in pop history. But the fact is you guys kept working. You guys kept creating stuff and you kept creating different, stuff.
1: I agree. And, and again, my, my friendship, unfortunately, it's only with Bert in the present. And sometimes I don't think he appreciates what he did as well. I think he's more cloistered. Is that the correct word? Maybe. Yes. He's, he's kind of checked out. How's that? It's cloister, you know, monastery, you go away and you hide, you know. Well, Burton's not part of the scene. He doesn't doesn't want to tour. He doesn't want to play Sharona on stage. I mean, my daughter had to do it because he wouldn't, seriously. And Burton actually showed her some of the riffs, too, by the way. And he's proud of, you know, my daughter. Who knew my daughter's going to play it? Who knew my son's going to be as good a drummer as he is? I don't know. It's life. But but I remind Burton when Capitol Records had their 75th anniversary uh, a number of years ago and Get the Knack was selected as one of the iconic albums of 75 years, I had a big burden to come. He said, he nah, "I don't want to go." Yeah, he finally did. My kids got in the four. He goes, "Get your ass there, man!" What's <laughs> wrong with you? he's become complex Burton we're celebrating you get your ass here and he came and he thanked me afterwards I'll send you a picture of us together I'd love it. because I mean, my kids are just going Burton come on man take a bow you deserve it and I think there's a funny thing about Burton you know I think some issues maybe pissed him off about certain things and maybe the way things worked out and maybe he got more credit but I'm reminding him and I am a big cheerleader for him and as I am for Bruce and Doug unfortunately you know it's me and Burton and again I remind Burton, I keep, you know, Burton, you couldn't pay me enough to say as much as I'm saying about you and he thanks me I go well don't thank me do something all right and is a good guy he really is so that's why I'm telling you this I just wish maybe he'd appreciate more of how much of an impact personally he made and again I, I'm grateful to talk about it
2: as I should I gotta say once again thank you so much Prescott this has been an absolute treat hearing you go through all your memories and all the things that meant so much to you not just in your neck life but with all the other music that you've done in your life and if you would Have told 16 year old me when I bought Get the Knack that I was going to get to speak to one of these guys on a podcast years later, I would have thought, You've got to be kidding me. So, no, thank you so much. I'm really, really appreciative for your time. I'm with you. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to episode 157 of Love That Album. Bye. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Prescott Niles. As you heard, he's still playing these days with 80s band Missing Persons. So if you're in California, get out and see them perform. They'll be fantastic. Prescott's kids, Liv, Noah and Gabe Niles, have an excellent band called Gateway Drugs. Their most recent album is called PSA. Give them a listen. Next month for Love That Album, episode 158, is something very different for this show. We're not going to be focusing on music. My guest is fellow Pantheon podcaster, Stephen Jurgensmeyer who hosts a terrific show called All Music Podcasts Deep Dive. Stephen gets authors of music books to come onto the show and talk about their books and the music in general that they've written about. It's always really great listening. However... I'm inviting Stephen on the show in his capacity of his day job. He's an album cover designer and he's designed covers for records like Raising Sand by Robert Plant and Alison Krauss, Copper Blue by Sugar and I'm the Cosmos by Chris Bell X Big Star. And there's been many more that he's also designed the covers for. We'll talk about his approach to cover design, his favorite album covers from recorded music history, limitations he's had to work with when considering the size of the CD format and wherever else the chat will lead us to. I think that should be a ton of fun. So until then, please look after each other. Listen to lots of music. New stuff. Old stuff, big names, some band you've just seen down at the pub, uh, a band that's gone and recorded in their bedroom and put the results out in band camp. It's all good. Share your newly discovered music with friends and maybe even on the Love That Album Facebook group. Until next month, look after each other. Speak soon. Cheers.